Welcome to the big show. I want to let you know that you can choose to see this show in video form. Go to partiallyexaminedlife.com to find the link. And while you're there, we hope you'll support us in the form of one-time or monthly recurring donation. Thanks and enjoy the show. All right, last one, and then we're going to have our special guest, Philosophy Bro, read some stuff from his site, philosophybro.com, or something else that he's come up with, because he's a singular genius who has put this thing out in the world that is even more popular than Partial Examined Life. So get up there while we're sitting. All right. This is called, it's a, it's, an, it's a song about ontology. Nothing in this world but you. Sometimes after failure has hit you again And you can't keep on working for art or for pleasure Cause indulging yourself just doesn't hold your interest And there's not much to know that doesn't keep fading And after your aims have been thoroughly trounced And you don't really think they were worthwhile Anyway, you'll be looking for someone to fill up that hole Something worth waking up for Do what I do, praise be to you I live only for love enduring There's nothing in this world but you Nothing in my world but you I'm betting all my energy That you won't be wrong for me There's nothing in this world but you Nothing left but me and you Nothing left to motivate or even to make me real I don't think you'll go for posterity It's not worth it, it's not worth it I don't think you'll put all your stakes on your friends Though that's a little closer to the heart I know you can't stomach some Jesus or goddess And immersion in politics is like dining with idiots Something that can't be kept up long I know you want money but not that much I know you can't feel with a casual touch You got no addictions I know of So baby please consider me After the madness of now goes away Whatever you do and whenever you pray And even if you never feel as crummy as I often do Do what I do, praise be to you I live only for love endearing There's nothing in this world but you Nothing in this world but you I'm betting all my energy That you won't be wrong for me There's nothing in this world but you Nothing left but me and you Nothing left to motivate Or even to make me real Ow, 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 ow
Welcome to Partially Examined Life Live. As Mark said, I'm a singular genius. Uh, you may know me as Philosophy Bro. I'm honored to be here for the 100th episode of Partially Examined Life. Give it up for 100 episodes. Yeah. We're going to be reading the Symposium by Plato, which I'm thrilled about because it's the broiest of Plato's works. And not just because of the homoeroticism, though... That plays. I'm not going like, to read you my translation straightforwardly of the Apology, but I want to talk about the Apology because that's the other like, big platonic dialogue where Socrates' personality comes through. I mean, he's a dick in everything that he writes or that he's featured in. But the Apology is where he's been put on trial for corrupting the youth and for being impious and not worshipping the gods. And in classic Socratic fashion, he, he doesn't really defend himself in the traditional sense of saying, I, I'm not guilty of those things. What he does is he gets up and he says, like, well, I'm like a million years old and I've never been here in court before, so I'm just going to do my thing. Which is how every Socratic dialogue starts. Like, hey, I'm just going to be Socrates for a while. If you could be cool with that, like, it's going to be great. And I was like, yeah, that's okay. All you, bud. And so he gets up and he says, I'm just, I'm just going to be Socrates and I'm going to defend myself. The thing is, everyone seems to think like, oh, Socrates, he thinks he's so great. But really, I don't think I'm that great at all. All that happened is I went to the Oracle, and the Oracle is like, Socrates, you're the smartest person. And I'm like, well, Oracle, I'm not one to question, like, the mouth of the gods on Earth. But that doesn't seem like I'm the smartest person on Earth. Let me see if I can find someone smarter than me. And that way I won't just be like, the Oracle's wrong. I can be like, the Oracle's wrong. It's Dave. That's the smartest person. So I went around to everyone, and I was like, hey, you seem to know a lot of things, politicians, and that went as well as you expected. And then I went to, like, artisans, and I was like, you guys make cool shit. You probably know other things too, right? And they're like, yeah, I know lots of stuff. I made a chair, and also I know about the meaning of life. But they didn't, so that didn't go great. And then I went to lawyers, and they were just still also the politicians, so that wasn't great either. So the problem is that I haven't found anyone else who knows anything. And I think the only reason the Oracle thinks I'm very smart is because I know I don't know shit. And the rest of you don't know shit, but you're all like, look at me, I know shit. And you don't. <laughs> so that was like the thrust of his defense. And then he calls his prosecutor up. He's like, hey, come up here. I've got some questions. No, yeah, you. You wanted to be the guy who murdered Socrates. Here's your chance, big guy. Get up here. So he calls this guy up and he's like, so there are two charges, corrupting the youth and being impious. And he's like, okay, so first charge, you're saying I corrupt the youth. Well, what's good for the youth? And the guy's like, well, the jury, the jury's cool people, they're good for the youth. And he's like, yeah, good. And the laws, and, and, and Miletus is like, yeah, the laws. And Socrates is like, and uh, other Athenians and the whole city. And he's like, yeah, all that shit. You're all great. Vote for prosecution. And Socrates is like, so what you're saying is literally everyone in Athens is good for the youth except for me. And Miletus is like, yeah, yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying. Everyone... Everyone but you. And Socrates is like, great, you're doing great. So the other thing is, I'm, you're saying I'm corrupting people. Well, let me ask you, someone surrounds himself with corrupted things. How are things going to go for that person? And the guy's like, yeah, not super good. I mean, like if a horse surrounded himself with people who didn't know anything about horses, that would be bad for the horse, right? And Malaysia's like, horses, yes, yes, that would be true. And like if a lyricist surrounded himself with people who are terrible at music, that would be bad for the, for the lyricist. And he'd be like, yeah, his, his lyrics would go just way down. He wouldn't be very good at that at all. And Socrates is like, so what you're saying is, I'm surrounding myself with people that I'm turning into assholes? And Malaysia's like, 
Yeah, I guess that's what I'd have to be saying, isn't it? Yeah. And Zach's so like, but you know that'd be that'd be bad for me, right? And Liz's like, yeah, I don't know why you're doing it either. I don't know why you're putting assholes everywhere, but you totally are. And then the last one is the charge of impiousness. And Socrates is like, so you're saying I don't believe in gods, right? But I believe in other spiritual things. And Molet is like, yes, yeah, this is the big one that I'm going for. This is what I want the death penalty for. You don't believe in the gods. You believe in other spiritual shit. And Socrates, he does this thing where like he just says a definition and because whoever he's talking to can't come up with a better definition. They're like, fucking yeah, let's go with your thing, Socrates. And Socrates is like, so your spirits, right? They would have to be either the gods or children of gods, right? And Milady's like, yeah, that, yes, let's say spirits are that, because who knows what spirits actually are? And Socrates is like, well, so you're saying I believe in children of gods, but not gods. That doesn't work, does it? And Milady's like, fuck, I shouldn't have let you talk. Oh, you've gotten 180 on me. And then Socrates is like, he makes him sit down and he says, so people ask me, like, why didn't you just apologize? And he's like, because fuck that. I am doing what I think is the right thing to do. I'm just going to do me. And all I can do is me. And then if you don't like that, too bad. But I'm not going to live a lie. I'm not going to live a lie for some hypothetical juror who isn't happy about me. And this is Socrates just being himself. And then the time comes to ask for, like, the verdict. And the jury votes, like, we were on his side, and then he was just a huge dick about it to everyone. So they, they, rent, they give a guilty verdict. And then in, in Athens, after a guilty verdict, you would say, like, all right, I'm guilty. Here's what my punishment should be. And so Miletus gets up, and he's like, yeah, death. That's my thing. Thanks, I'm Miletus. And he has a seat. And Socrates gets up, and he's like, well, now I have to tell you what I think I deserve. And his friends are like, fucking please, Socrates, just say, like, exile. Just be cool about it. And Socrates is like, I think I deserve a parade. <laughs> I still don't think I did anything wrong. It doesn't have to be like a parade through the streets. It could be like a party with cake. I'd be fine with that. But other than that, I think that's pretty much what I deserve. And then, and then the judge is going to be like, all right, everyone decide what his punishment should be, whether it should be death or a party. And everyone was like, fucking, we were so ready to vote for anything but death that wasn't a party. We didn't want to vote for death, but the only thing we want to vote for less than death is a party. And so Socrates got the death penalty because the option, the only out he gave the jurors was cake. <laughs> and I think you'll see through the symposium that that personality of Socrates also really shining through. This is just, the symposium is a bunch of bros getting really drunk at, like, really drunk, and talking about love, because ancient Greece. And with that, uh, the symposium. Right. You are viewing the Partially Examined Life. Philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point thought about doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Except for that guy who got a physics PhD... And, and then didn't want to do physics anymore, and then taught philosophy for a while, but then didn't do that anymore. And this guy, who actually is a philosophy professor, but has Are an alternate... Are we allowed to say that? <laughs> oh, do am, we, I, am I not allowed to say that? Do we know that? We don't know that. <laughs> and, and we don't know his last name. But I know his first name, but we'll try not to say it. And you certainly, you certainly don't look old enough to be a philosophy professor. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> who knows why that is? Plus, 
our topic for episode one zero zero is uh, Plymouth Symposium. You know that. How many people looked at it before they got here? Wow, well, that's like yeah. that's a that's a majority. Well, looked at it is very low. <laughs> you waved it. I looked at it. You waved at it. How, yeah, many, how many people read this summary at uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy? Okay, See, that's, wow, that's, that's popular. That's so no, they, uh, people they hate actually Stanford. read it. They actually read it. All right. Let's for the people that are not familiar. In fact, my kids are here somewhere. They're outside, right? Can you can they hear me, Abe and Mina? <laughs> Kim, can you hear me? Hello? No. No? All right. Shouldn't we say it was working where we are? Before. Oh, we're, this is Mark Lentenmeyer, and I'm sitting in the Craftsman Tap and Table in Middleton, Wisconsin. This is Seth Baskin, and I'm also sitting at the Craftsman Tap and Table in Middleton, Wisconsin. This is Wes Allwin, and ditto what they just said. This is Dylan Casey, also at Craftsman Table and Tap. This is Philosophy Bro, from an undisclosed location. <laughs> <laughs> the underground bunker. Yeah. <laughs> And now all of you introduce yourself. No, <laughs> actually, I, I know that I was busy futzing with sound stuff beforehand, but you know we're going to be hanging around for at least an hour after we're done here, and we want to meet everybody. So introduce yourselves, and then we'll maybe recognize you when you email us something in name. And we know a lot of you traveled for quite a ways to get here, so thanks all of you for yes. coming yes. out. It's really awesome. Yeah, we should also introduce. So Josh, Josh Casey, Dylan's brother, is our our sound engineer. Glenn Luce Austin is our video guy. Our frequent guest, Daniel Horn, who was on uh, episode 99 with us that we recorded last night. He's been uh, on the Kierkegaard episode, on several other ones, Schleiermacher, all, all the popular episodes, the Schleiermachers. And, um, <laughs> and he'll be our live social tweeting. media manager. Yes, yes. About half the time, if you interact with us on Twitter, you are dealing with Daniel. The other part, you're dealing oh, with shit. Seth. What's up? <laughs> <laughs> oh. So you guys know him already. I know him better than I know you for. Now, who <laughs> the people you don't know so well are are people like Phaedrus and Pausanias. So we each turn it around, turn it around. So now we're we're, we're actually we're not going to play act this. This is not a this is not one of those kind of things. But we did feel so. This is a long dialogue, and it's not the typical Socratic dialogue where it's just. Socrates and a bunch of dumbasses who say, yes, Socrates, yes, Socrates. It's at a drinking party, and they're taking turns. They're supposed to give speeches in praise of Eros. And Eros... Well, why are they there, though? They're there to drink. They're, they're there for a to party for Agathon, because Agathon. Agathon won the competition for the best oh. play. See, see, Agathon's always calling attention to himself. <laughs> So and it's actually the second night of this party. So the night before, oh, really? they had a huge party. Everybody got completely drunk. And one of the features of these drinking parties is that people would drink into extreme excess. And they would challenge each other to drink. It was basically a fraternity party. And <laughs> toga, toga party. A toga party. And they all agree that they've had too much to drink the night before. And they cannot stand to drink as much as they did the night before. So they're not going to force each other to drink. They're only going to drink as much as they feel like drinking. And then, <laughs> like that's an advance. which is always a recipe for <laughs> sobriety and moderation. And then, um, and Socrates was not there the night before. He he decided to stay away, but he felt compelled to come on the second night. The other thing about the beginning of this dialogue is the whole dialogue is told from the point of view of someone telling Apollodorus, talking to Apollodorus, who we don't know who this person is. Maybe it's Glaucon. We're not we're not sure that it is. Name drop. <laughs> we, okay. There are rules. There are no rules. There are no, no rules, rules today. today. I apologize. Should I read? No <laughs> rules today. 
you guys want the rules are no. That doesn't matter. We don't know who the guy is, but the point is that the there's a frame. There's a frame for the dialogue in that some of the dialogues start off clearly being in the third person, but this one starts off in the first person and. That person is relating a story that was told to him by the person that went with Socrates. Who, who heard it from his, I think it was a dream that his dog had, something like that. <laughs> because the dog was there. Who heard it from the loot girl? It's extreme hearsay. Which is yes, it's extreme, <laughs> it's extreme hearsay. So instead of drinking all night and just getting completely drunk and the loot girls and the whole nine yards, they decide that they're going to just hang out and they need to have something to occupy themselves and Phaedrus decides well why don't we have speeches to praise the god that never gets praised which is Eros the god of love except so Eros I had read that was it's appetite really and in fact it was used you know not too far in the in the past uh, compared to these characters as just even appetite for food and so it's really... It's, but it's it also appetite for what you expect it's happening. Right, right. Well, so by, so by this time, it really, the, the meaning had gotten focused on... But it's a very visceral. It's you see something beautiful and you want it. So that's what Eros is, which is... So that's a di little different than Aphrodite. You know, so there's, there's questions. And one of the... You know, it's cupidity here, or Cupid. Yes, yes, yeah, Cupid. So but there's, no, there's no talk of arrows and little babies flying around, right? No, no that's, that's later that's on. But in any case, and one of the ambiguities in here is that there are no capital letters in ancient Greek, and so it's unclear from, from moment to moment what they're talking about. Eros, the thing that we all experience, lust, and or Eros, the actual god, capital E, Eros. We would distinguish those. Those people wouldn't distinguish those. In fact, that was a kind of a common thing, a way of talking about gods, that gods are imminent in experience, that you could talk about you know, war as being Ares, like Ares is among us, or the spirit of Dionysus is among us when we're all getting drunk. Well, we know he's done the background research. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so you set the frame. Yeah, yeah so, 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 set that, the frame for the... so that's the beginning. The other interesting thing about that symposium, and Mark alluded to this earlier, is that it really is a play in a way that the other dialogues aren't. That there's a lot of ancillary action going on, and for instance, one of the things that happens, besides this being told from several points removed, is that there's this whole walk-up that Socrates has. He walks up to Agathon's house. And when he gets there, he's going in with Aristodemus, who Aristodemus wasn't invited. But Socrates finds him on the street and drags him along. And then when he gets there, he gets to the door of the house, and he stays on the porch. Socrates does. He says, and Aristodemus has to go in, and he's embarrassed because he actually isn't invited. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Agathon says, oh, come on in, we're having a party, where's Socrates? He said, he's out on the porch. And he says, well, well go get him. He says, well, don't, don't disturb him. He likes to stay out on the porch. He'll come in when he's ready. So he stayed out on the porch for the whole beginning of the party, just in reverie, thinking. Seems so like a neurotic cat. Well, <laughs> so this comes around later or on. Or he's a poser. <laughs> well, it comes around later on, we'll talk about at the end of the dialogue, is that one of the characters relates a story that this is what he used to do during battle. Like, in between the battles, he would go out and just sit around and just start thinking. In between the battles, not just not... charge, and then he's like, wait a second, I'm going <laughs> to... Yeah. So, so... Which is not to say, you know, I'm not going to go to the front lines. I have That's right, some no. Work to complete. It, yes. He, he was also... 
kick ass in battle. Yeah, well, and we'll get to that. He's, he's the greatest drinker, the greatest warrior, he's the greatest philosopher. Paragon of virtue. Yes. <laughs> All right. And so, drinking is part of that. That's yes, he can drink and never get drunk as much as possible. But so then Socrates comes in, and one thing you should imagine is that this is a room with a whole bunch of couches arranged around in a circle. And they're all good, like almost like at a table, but they're going to, they're getting food and they're drinking and they're talking in a conversation. It seemed very awkward. You're like leaning on one awkward. arm and then you have to scoop food off of a table in front of you. <laughs> it's also I thought we requested that from the, the venue, but they didn't get, they didn't have the couches. I also have trouble imagining it without the loot girl. That's kind of surprised me. Did we explain the loot girl? Is that... They banned the loot girl. That's all they, they did. need to know. So that's a normal. <laughs> It represents the expellation well, of the female yeah, yeah, yeah. from the. No, let's not. Let's yeah. <laughs> down. Please. Loot. Loot. As in a. Uh, oh, no, it is a flute. It's, it's not a flute girl. Although it's a flute. We had this discussion. It's some last night. instrument that doesn't exist anymore. Is it in some translations like they've said loot, or was that just a. I might, be, I might be misspeaking. It's an artifact of our drunken conversation last night. <laughs> yes. Flute became loot. Yes. yes. It's it, should be, it should be noted that in order to provide the most authentic. <laughs> Last night, we had our own drinking and conversation. <laughs> and today, I am only having as much as I want. <laughs> so Socrates comes in. He sits next to Agathon in this room. And what they're going to do in these speeches, they're going to go around the room in order, giving speeches. It's a little bit of a competition. Who's going to give the best next best one? And so Socrates, in the order, right now, is last. Phaedrus. Phaedrus, who started it, yeah, so is that, first. So I chose Phaedrus just to give the one-minute version. I'm not going to, again, act it out. I'm not going to put on the Phaedrus hat right now. <laughs> I didn't bring the Phaedrus hat, actually. So his position, each of these guys kind of represents one of the strains in the culture. So we've got a tragedian, a comedian, yeah. an asshole, a, <laughs> a pederast, a super pederast, <laughs> and a doctor pederast. A doctor. <laughs> So Phaedrus is the one who suggested it. He goes first. He gives the kind of the most shallow speech and says stuff like... Which is why you're starting it. Well, I picked it because it, it was short. That's why I chose this one. Phaedrus is a young guy. And really, most of these people, when they're giving the speech, they're kind of defending themselves. They're saying something about their own experience. They're trying to... And the way pederasty worked in this particular... You know, it's not all of Greece was running around doing this. It's just it's this particular clique of... You're jumping my train here. Oh. I'm not going to give the whole That's thing. That's how pederasty works. <laughs> Basically, it's people interested in philosophy, right? Is that what, no. <laughs> no, it's and the... that still holds true It's the it? high society of the time. It's like the... It's the Hollywood contingent or the but, uh, so, entertainers. And, yes. yes. And politicians. So the, the, the paradigm for all of these guys when they're thinking about love is not necessarily, it's definitely not even between man and woman. It's between the people in the room. So Phaedrus is the, the young boyfriend of Eryximachus and Pausanias is the... You have to look at the I, I can't remember how these freaking things are pronounced. Pausanias is the, the older paramour of Agathon. Even though Agathon is actually kind of getting up in years, so that's a little strange. But he's, but he's also the best looking of the bunch. I don't know if Phaedrus considers himself the best looking of the bunch. He's wrong, though. Anyway. Agathon's legendary so, for his good looks. So Phaedrus, <laughs> Phaedrus has often been the subject, and, and it's really the, the, the lust involved, the eros, is the older guy. And 
the younger one is supposed to just expect to actually resist for a while and then say, oh, okay, and, and kind of do it. Are you doing a speech right now? No, no, no. I'm just giving the background. Just, just okay. give the Phaedrus. Just give Phaedrus. Well, all right. So, so Phaedrus, <laughs> Phaedrus is trying to defend his position as being manly, even though he is a, a young, frat kind of guy who is often hooked up with older men and responded to them with the appropriate uh, gratitude, filial love. He's not supposed to actually get erotic about them. So he, his speech is all just about what it is to be loved and how awesome it is to be loved. And so he says, for instance, if you are beloved, then you will be more virtuous because you don't want to do anything unvirtuous around the person that loves you, right? So you got that pressure, you got that overlooking. And the specific case, since he, again, is a manly soldier type that wants to show how awesome he is, he says that if a whole army is made up of couples like this or beloveds, they will just fight like crazy because they'll be too ashamed. You know, they'll, they'll not only want to protect each other because the, so this, is a, this is a defense of gays in the military, <laughs> of an all-gay unit in the military. It goes way beyond anything in, in modern discourse uh, to say... You would have a, a super soldier army, in fact, if they were all the beloved, if they were all like me, Phaedrus. And in fact, historically, before the date of the, uh, that the symposium should have taken place, after that date, but before Plato wrote it, there was actually yeah. an army, a battalion, effectively, of the Greek army that was proposed by one of the leaders to be all lovers. Yeah. And so it was the lover's army. It was wiped out eventually. <laughs> so his speech starts off with just saying things like, Eros is the, the oldest of the gods. In the beginning was chaos, but then love she, designed, she, she devised first before all the gods. And it's after chaos came earth and love. And so that's not really much of a creation story. We don't even know where love came from. It, chaos didn't create love. But he's at least throwing some words out to make it sound like he's saying something cosmic. But then he, you know, after saying love is the oldest of the gods... You know, lovers alone among mankind actually long to give up their own lives for the sake of their loved ones. And this is true not, not only of men, but of women too. So a proof here can be found in the well-known story of Admetus' wife. So he gives these three little stories. This Alcestis, the wife of Admetus, was willing to die for her husband. Whereas Orpheus, you probably know the story, was not willing to die for his wife. His wife died and he said, instead I'm going to sneak down to Hades and get her back. And that seems like a pretty awesome thing to try to do to me. <laughs> but Phaedrus thinks that's, that's the coward's way. Don't do the coward's way and sneak into Hades. You should actually just die, and then you can go to Hades and just be with her. Come on. Uh, and then the, the most important story here is Achilles, which even though it doesn't, in Homer's version of, of the Achilles story, you know, so Achilles, uh, his Patroclus, one of his, his co-fighters is killed, and there's an, a prophecy that says, hey, Achilles, if you go avenge Patroclus, you're going to die too. But Achilles, he was, he was beloved by Patroclus, so he was awesome, and he went out and he took revenge, killed Hector, even though he was going to get killed. And so that shows that being beloved makes you super brave. But apparently it was some other source that actually made it so that Patroclus was the, the older uh, lover of Achilles, and Phaedrus even wants to is disputing some of the textual. Well, one of these places says Achilles was older, but that clearly, no, 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 no. Achilles was the young, awesome one, and he was the beloved. And so, you know, as I said before, it's usually the lover, the older one, who's the one who gets all crazy because of Eros. So for a beloved to actually go and give your life for your lover that by tradition you're really only supposed to be kind of grateful for and kind of yield to their demands and take their 
college recommendation essay <laughs> and, and your job references and the other things like that. But Achilles was that awesome. And so am I. Phaedrus. Any, yeah, anything else? Yeah, about I think, it, you know, I think what's interesting the way this begins, if you're going to praise love, I think it's interesting that we start off with something that might be counterintuitive to the contemporary era, which is to say love makes us virtuous. This is the, yeah. the avenue that we're going to go down. Mm-hmm. We might be more used to something more akin to Aristophanes' speech where yeah. we, we get some idea of a romantic conception of love. Mm-hmm. It's something we want and we need and which will make us happen. And in the case of Phaedrus, being loved makes you virtuous. It's, 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 right. a, it's a little bit like the um, panopticon, right? <laughs> and that the gaze of, right. of your lover will make you want to do good things. Yeah, and I think there are two elements of that that we should keep in mind going forward. And one is, <clears throat> one thing Phaedrus talks about is shame. So he emphasizes this word shame. You don't want to do... Uh, shameful things in front of your lover. So that's one of the reasons why you're going to be more virtuous. Uh, so love is awesome pride. because it makes you ashamed. And the other is... <laughs> yeah, Exactly. So this, and this is... And I think that's... You know, I think the dialogue is meant to commit. It's an odd approach. You know, yeah. someone starts out, let's praise love. Okay, let's talk about shame. <laughs> and then the other, the other thing he talks about is pride. So it's there's sort of a negative side and a positive side to it. The shame side is... The kinds of things you want to avoid doing to avoid seeming disgraceful to your lover. And then the other, the more positive side of, I want to do great things. And then, you know, towards the end of his speech, he gets towards self-sacrifice, which is really just one species of pride and doing great things to impress people. So this is all about recognition of the other. We could go back to our Hegel and our Lacan episodes right. and no, we're connect not it to that. that. No, we're going <laughs> to give little intimations so people can go to those episodes hashtag and Hegel. think about those connections. But yeah, this is about, hashtag. you know, as you said, the gate, right? Yep. The gaze of the other. So, yep. yeah. so let me preface my participation in this particular role <laughs> <laughs> by saying that I hate email and Mark loves to write long emails. <laughs> yes. And uh, so I don't read email very carefully. And uh, when we were passing out who was going to do what role, he said, well, I've got number two and number three left. And I was like, all right, I'll take number two. Because it had been about 15 years since I'd read the symposium. <laughs> and uh, you know, Did you know you were playing Seth tonight? Is it- <laughs> <laughs> no, but I was going to say, it's a good thing I'm not a method actor. Not <laughs> or I wouldn't have made the trip because I'd be in jail. <laughs> Um, so Pausanias is basically a defender of, I won't call it, I don't believe, <laughs> I don't believe it's the accepted view of man-boy relationships in Athens, but it's certainly the view that's accepted by this particular group at this, at this gathering. And he's, he's trying to extol the virtues of what it is for an older male lover to have a younger male lover. Uh, And the way he does this is that he first associates love with the goddess Aphrodite, which makes sense because Aphrodite is the goddess of love. And Aphrodite has two aspects. So those of you who are familiar with the way Greek gods work, they manifest themselves in the world oftentimes under different kinds of aspects. And Aphrodite has two. One is Urania, uh, it's the daughter of Uranus, who is the heavenly aspect of Aphrodite. And then there's Aphrodite Pandemos, who is the daughter of Zeus and Dion. Dion was a titan, and that's the common, or you know, you can think of highbrow and lowbrow version of Aphrodite. And he says, love has these same two aspects. There's a heavenly aspect of love, and there is a common aspect of love. 
he sets that up first to then say, which I think there's something that's interesting, but it's kind of a side note in his speech, which is that no particular action in itself is good or bad. So we don't say that one kind of love is good and one kind of love is bad, but everything is contextual. So it depends on who the two people are or, or six people, depending on uh, <laughs> what you're talking about. Um, it's honorable or shameful depending on not just the people involved in the situation, but their intentions which is, I think, a radically and radically interesting thing to throw out there at this stage in the game because the idea of paying attention to intentions and action doesn't come along oftentimes for, uh, for quite some time. So he says love is that same way, and we can't judge love absolutely in one way or the other. We have to look at the specific relationships. So the common love, this uh, pandemos common love, is the love that's only interested in physical gratification, sex. And because he relates it to Zeus and Dion, he says, this is the love that you see in relationships between men and women, but also men and men. It's, it's a, and he really says men and boys, and he means sub-adolescent boys. It's a distinction we don't need to delve into today. Um, <laughs> well, with a little hair on their face. With a little, yes. Yeah. But what's interesting, by the way, is Dion, apparently, according to my very, very cursory research, is actually just the feminine name of Zeus. So it's kind of ironic that he says that it's male and female, when in reality it's kind of two aspects of Zeus in that, in that respect. But anyway. The research. Heavenly, research. Yeah, that's, that's against yeah, the rules, isn't it? Um, <laughs> the heavenly love, on the other hand, is about something that I'll just characterize as a deeper reciprocal relationship. In the way he characterizes it, it's actually more economic. There's an exchange of knowledge and wisdom for physical gratification. Uh, so it's, it's definitely more, uh, more of an exchange. But... He's trying to characterize something that he thinks is a more meaningful relationship between two people beyond simply physical gratification. And because that particular aspect is related only to the god Uranus, he thinks that it's particularly male, and that's why he characterizes it as only available between an older male lover and an adolescent with a beard is just coming in, male lover. So that's his paradigm. There's a challenge when you're looking at these kinds of texts to abstract and try to generalize these concepts from the uh, context in which they're articulated. So to be as generous as I possibly can be, because those of you who listen to the podcast know that I'm the generous reader and the textual guy, um, you know, I think what he's trying to say is, look, there is physical gratification and there is a deeper connection that you can have. His paradigm happens to be this, this older lover, younger lover, virtue, wisdom in exchange for you know, sexual gratification. But I think the reality is he's trying to say, you can have a meaningful connection. Love can be a meaningful connection between two people, or it can be simply physical gratification. And those are two aspects of love, and that's what he's trying to point out. And I think leaving it that distinction would be simply enough to characterize it. But again, in order to try to give the best possible <laughs> characterization to this, there are two little asides in the conversation which I think are interesting. And the first is he mentions, he's talking about other cultures, tyrannical cultures, and some of these others, and he says, you know, in this place where they don't think, where they aren't used to, like, coming up with ideas, they don't think anything's wrong with any of this stuff. They just, they don't even judge it because they don't, they don't think about it. But he says that this love, this heavenly love between two people is actually forbidden in tyrannical societies in a, in a way because it's subversive. Tyrants do not want people to have meaningful relationships with, the, with each other that in a totalitarian society, the tyrant determines what the relationships between people are going to be, and that love in this way, and he also mentions philosophy and sport, 
ironically, are really subversive in that kind of a society because it allows people to actually have meaningful connections and set the terms of their own relationship in a way that's not acceptable to, to the government. So I think that's one interesting one-sentence pullout you can, you can get from this. Uh, and then the other is that the two aspects of love represent the possibility of transcendence and corruption. He says that if, if somebody is seduced by money or power, they can never rise above that. Once you're a slave to those tastes, once you're essentially common love, pandemos, you'll never get away from that if you, if you give yourself into that. But if you are able to transcend and participate and commit to this heavenly love, you can actually transcend that and escape this kind of corrupted form of existence. So that's the quick summary of Pausanias, as, as generous as I could possibly be about it. But I, I found it interesting after I was able to kind of get over my initial... Um, Horror? <laughs> shock. Well, it, it's worth noting that at this point, Aristophanes, who's supposed to speak next, goes into a hiccup fit. He is absolutely appalled by Pausanias' speech. Not because... He's he, not appalled. He realizes he can't follow it. He's got to think about it. Well... <laughs> I think he just can't laugh, you know, without giving offense. And so <laughs> that, might, that might be true. But or wait, he's drunk it, and has hiccups. Wait, We've was, all it, been was, it kind of, was it this kind of... Bullshit! <laughs> 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 Yes. yes, yes. And, and that's the translation of the yes. Greek yeah, word. That's, for, that's yeah. the Greek. Yes. Was that capital or <laughs> lowercase? I don't know. And, and part of it is because the God if you, bullshit if you read it, I think, I think Seth, Seth gives uh, the most generous version possible of what Pausanias could have been referring to. But it is clear that he is also just pandering to Agathon. Because he just is trying to get Agathon to believe that a relationship with him is going to be the way of greater virtue. And also, you, you'll see they're, they're very similar speeches in yes. their respect, and they're very whitewashing speeches of love. Yes. So what's interesting is yeah. Phaedra started out on a certain tack, which was very, very positive, and now you get this little this introduction of a cake, which is that they're, you know, not all love is great. So yes. we're setting the stage for the, the drama here. So, yeah. so we, we should, in defense of Pausanias, uh, so I believe he was, the custom for these pederastic relationships, the, the, the young boy would be 14 to 18 or something, and then once the, he got beyond that age, then it would stop. And, you know, You're defending pederastic? No, I'm really? saying, <laughs> I'm saying, I'm saying the... Pausanias... Let me, let me put on still, my anthropologist hat here. Pausanias is still in a relationship with Agathon, even though Agathon is now 31, according to something I read. So he's actually defending, he's saying that... No, no, he says, he says at the end of his speech, usually you stop, but sometimes if the relationship is super special, <laughs> it, can, it, can go, it can go on. Um, listen, listen... I mean, this guy is clearly a straight man in this <laughs> well, conversation. You know, also, I, one I, thing we left out is the straight man. That's great. <laughs> I know. Sorry. Uh, you know, he, he goes into the required evasiveness of the beloved. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it sounds more like a game in some sense where... So the beloved should resist the advances of the, of the lover. And there are only certain circumstances under which he should give in. And those are sort of educational circumstances. Yeah. He, he can gain in... Virtue. So this is still about how love can make us more virtuous. But in this case, it's the more possibility of, of an education by an elder, which makes it worth suffering their sexual harassment. Yeah. No. No. You're you're right. And I. I mean, I didn't. I didn't go into to all those details because it seems to me that that's not material to the philosophical points that are need, being made as much as kind of the culture. Him trying to justify the cultural conditions, but. 
the idea is that there's this role to play, and it's important that the beloved, the younger lover, you know, first of all, the families are supposed to be against this. In a certain sense, it's uh, against the societal norms. And so part of it is that the, the younger lover has to overcome the resistance of those, uh, those social norms to then even be willing to try to entertain this. And then that dance becomes a resistance where they, they refuse to give in, they refuse to give in. And then eventually they give in, but only after they've extracted the wisdom or the appropriate. They have to verify that the lover, the older male, is actually there for good intentions. And this goes back to what I was saying about him putting the context around you have to pay attention to whether it's good intentioned and situationally correct. So in other words, the younger, the beloved has to vet the lover and make sure that he's doing this for all the right reasons. He really wants to impart virtue and isn't a vulgar, just you know, simply trying to get sex kind of thing. But there's a lot of skepticism even culturally about this. Yes, there's a so, lot so, of so, so, which is, so which is one of the reasons one might interpret Aristophanes' hiccups in yeah. Anyway, but I, well, I think the interesting thing is we're still talking about, it, it seems like Pausanias has deviated from the love is great because it makes us virtuous, but he really does come back to that at the end. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's a different idea of how love instills virtue. In the first speech, it's about being ashamed or prideful. In this speech, it's about being educated. And we'll get a different version of how love instills virtue in each of these speeches. We should throw out there, obviously this whole thing is hugely sexist, and Pausanias most of all, that if the way that you've described it, if right, the only legitimate kind of relationships that's going to have the higher kind of love is when there's this teaching relationship where there's this, this uh, pretty much the younger one is exhibiting his reason, exhibiting his restraint, and they just don't think that women can do that. And according to the, the intro to my book, it's because this state of Perda, P-U-R-D-A-H, operated for Greek women, shutting them in the house and denying them education. So that was the norm. So, you know, this whole pederasty thing, like, it, it was not uncommon for the older man to also be married. You hook up with the, the wife to, because you have to propagate the species, because you need to. Right. So it's only, you know, Pausanias is, is, is an extreme case that he's actually not bisexual, but straight up only the, the men. Because he and just seems to want nothing to do with the women because they only have access to this. You know, if you're going to have any relationship with them, it would only be this lower kind of love. You could never have the higher kind, which is obviously anachronistic. And yeah, yeah, this is but, this but, is a dialogue about the joys of bromance. I think it. <laughs> that so, being that, so, being, that being said, the generous modern reader could interpret this kind of power relationship between an older person and a younger person. And you could transplant the genders if you wanted to in order to make the same point. I will leave it at that. The generous moderator should also be careful. Like, I'm all about separating out philosophies, like purity as a discipline. But sometimes culture can leak into philosophy. And it's worth saying that about that dialogue of like, oh, that was a fucked up culture sometimes that did really <laughs> fucked up things. And that probably leaked in a little bit. Like, yeah. you did a great job of extrapolating, like, oh, there were positive things to say about the, there are two kinds of love. There's the man-man love, and then there's the man-everything-else love. But yeah. also, what the fuck? But not, at least according to our... Nothing thing about you know. sodomy with animals, so there's that. <laughs> at least according to my... It my, would take to Peter Singer yeah. all the way for us to get there. But he's not representative of the culture, no, at least according to my footnote. His, so no. th there's a very complicated right. relationship between ancient Greek society and homosexuality. Yes, and, agreed. Um, we're never, right. never going to get to Socrates at this rate. No, we're yeah, not. Sorry. <laughs> I think we can so on to, wait until people just start walking. <laughs> uh, uh, Eric Simicus, 
who is a doctor, and he begins his by saying, um, Aristophanes, hold your breath, and then if that doesn't work, drink water, and then if that doesn't work, tickle your nose, he'll sneeze, and then your hiccups will go away. And I think that's the lasting contribution he gives <laughs> <laughs> to philosophy. Here are three things you could do the sneezing works, by the way, so, yeah. as a doctor. Right. And then he takes, so we've got this, Pausanias makes this distinction between like two different kinds of love, and Eryximachus wants to take that a step further and say that's not just something like contingent about man or something that like men, uh, these two relationships that we could have, but that those two different kinds of relationships are like grounded in nature and that we see love throughout nature, everywhere that we look. There are animals that love their offspring and there is like music is a kind of a love and that like seeking greatness or seeking the higher good involves uniting those sort of discordant elements. So he offers the example of a lute player who his job as a musician is to bring together notes that are normally discordant so that they are harmonious and that his job as a doctor is to create harmony in the body where there would be discord and back then the job of a doctor was he says something insanely specific like my job is to make it so that people can eat as much as they want without getting sick. Like that was what's the act the actual line? I know that's on my doctor's business card. Right. <laughs> he also mentions like the seasons specifically of like the the course of the seasons exhibits both of these like too far to one side or the other so the summer burns everything and then fall is nice and then it gets cold and terrible and everything's snowy and then sp- spring is nice again and then summer so he's bringing to, he's saying that there are these two kinds of love out in the world, one good and one bad, and our job as people is to constantly be seeking the good while expelling the bad. And here's one way that happens in love and in seeking out relationships and in caring for each other for reasons of like virtue and things that matter and not being like just lustful or only into someone because they're pretty or something like that. Don't fall in with polyhymnia, that sluttish siren. Right. The goddess of the lower kind of love. That you have to be careful not to fall in with her. But what's interesting is this... Uh, sorry, were you... That's pretty okay. much it, right? He's saying that there are these two kinds of love everywhere. So he's grounding yeah. it one level deeper, which yeah. is what you do when you're with a bunch of philosophers and you're dick measuring, is you go, I'd like to take this one level deeper, if I may. <laughs> right. And talk about where even what your point is grounded. Uh, so what's interesting is Posanius came in and he sort of got negative. He said, well, actually, there's, you know, it's not the Phaedrus whitewashing. There's higher and lower love. And now you get... Eurexemicus coming in and talking about this. Well, actually, we need both. We need them in a certain certain kind of fusion or mm-hmm. harmony. A certain the right in- amount of of each of them mixed together is what really rules the universe. It's a universal principle. So everything from health to music and and all sorts of other things. So it's an interesting way to you know try and bring to amend Pausanias' sort of negative position on that. Yeah. But all three of them have, so far, all basically talked about the effects of love rather than what love is. So they're talking about yeah. how great love is and what love can do for us, make us virtuous or bridge the gap between the good and the bad. Well, we're, we're still talking, is yeah. getting a little bit more ontological, a little more cosmic. And it, it just sounds like every pre-Socratic philosopher that you've ever heard of, where that posits one, everything is water. 
This, 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 that, that thing that when you hit that guy and he fell down, that was water. And then the, the sunrise, that's water. And so he's just saying, oh, it's love. Look, there's yes. love all, and not really getting any more specific or illuminating than that. Yeah. Well, the other, you know, the other, you know, another thing is that we're still talking about praising love according to how it improves us or how it makes us more virtuous. He's a doctor. He's taking that attack of it makes us healthier and, um, you know, it makes farming better and so on and so forth. It's sort of a principle that, you know, even sort of poetry and music and we expect all the other arts, it's, it's making stuff with love is how you do excellent work. But the other element here is he introduces this theme. He's the first one to talk about religion. So we're also, when we're thinking about love, we're also thinking about the relationship to the divine. He talks about in piety as a basically a version of refusing to gratify what he calls orderly love, which is this harmonized, temperate mix of the high and low versions of love. Yeah. So. I hated this speech. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's terribly written. Mean, it reads really poorly, I yeah. have to think, relative to the others. But I got the idea of the balance and the idea that it's mm-hmm. somehow harmonious. But I thought, isn't he the one he mentions? Does he mention Hesiod? In, um, is it theogony? He, he talks about Heraclitus and the bow. Is that okay, what you're yeah. He, 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 he about, totally messes it up. Which is, yeah. <laughs> well, but which is an important foreshadowing of Socrates, by the way. This really is the first speech, which is yeah. not static, but dynamic. Yeah. He's talking about mixture and tension and yep. things the first two speeches don't talk about. And he's really setting the stage for Socrates in the way the other speeches yeah. don't. But, so yeah. I didn't do the secondary research to validate my 25-year-old memories of reading Hesiod, but... What I remember is that Hesiod tells the story of how there's sort of essentially the earth god, right, and the sky god, but they're static entities. There's no interaction. They're just kind of, and it takes eros to create that dynamic action between the two. And so I thought that's kind of the direction he was going to go originally, that he's really describing it, it's balance, but it's the balance of that tension, which is really a dynamic force that makes things happen. Without eros, without some kind of dynamic tension, there's really just static beings that don't really interact with each other. Well, I, well it's, this is why I thought you would, you would actually like this speech, this <laughs> idea of temperance and balance. You know, Phaedrus loved good, and then Pausanias, good or bad, right. and, then, and then no, we're going to compromise, we're going to mix them together. Yeah. I just didn't like the way it was written or spoken. Sorry. No offense. Uh, not me. <laughs> He's been dead way longer than right. I have, which is none. <laughs> got away from it. Anyways, it's fine. It's right. fine. It's fine. Okay. Onward. The first right. good one. First good, yeah, I, I did like jump on this speech, and I did feel a little guilty about it when Mark asked. Yeah. He wants to take what? Well, yeah, he picked, he, he picked the first one. We decided to divide up the speeches. And I just jumped in, and I'll take the best one. And this one. is such a famous part of the dialogue that I had never actually read this before, this time, strangely, but I thought that was Plato's view, was this thing that you're about to talk about. Because it's, it's well, he the does, thing that really sticks you know, As we'll see, he does serve as an integrator of all the different views. So we'll, but, okay, so Aristophanes' speech. So the sneezing worked, right? Was it the sneezing that worked? Yeah. Er- Eryximachus <laughs> so, actually means belch fighter. Really? Okay. Yes. <laughs> Belch fighter. It sounds the name sounds cooler than what it means. So. Uh, Think of an application of that knowledge for your lives in the next two years. <laughs> it's 
Dr. Belchfighter, but that's <laughs> well, once, it's fine. It couldn't possibly matter. <laughs> once your hiccups are gone, you can talk about the sort of things Aristophanes talks about. So he tells a really arguably funny and bizarre sort of tale about the origins of love. And this is why I wanted to mention Eurexymachus and the sort of introduction of the idea of the relationships to the gods, because Aristophanes is actually pivoting off that, and he will talk about early human beings and a rebellion against the gods and our attempt on the gods, which I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I imagine them sort of running up the hill or tumbling with machine guns trying to take over Olympus. But right? it's a so, myth. He's not trying to actually say this is the history. He's trying to give it elucidation. I thought that went without saying, but yeah, that's... <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> He's not trying to give a history of the human race in this. So human beings are, in the beginning, sort of like Siamese twins. They're joined together at what initially seems like the back, but it will turn out to be the front. And it can be male-male, it can be male-female, it can be female-female. And so they're little, and they move around by sort of rolling, right? Or they have four I, arms and four legs. Yeah. And so, yeah, so each human being has four arms and four legs, and they... Um, not at all freaky. But they're, <laughs> he talks about their, so even though they seem ridiculous and absurd, he talks about their strength and their ambition, which makes me think, of the, again, of the, the first speech, where mm-hmm. ambition and pride are sort of motivators. So the gods, so they make an attempt on the gods, and the gods punish them by dividing them in two. Zeus in particular. Yeah. Zeus cuts them in two. And so now we have... Regular bipedal human well, initially we don't have regular bipedal human beings. We have human beings who their heads are still turned around in the opposite direction, and so are their genitals. And they throw themselves on each other, but they have no way of really mating or joining, and so they're sort of dying in droves. So you get this image of these people who are sort of tragically attracted to each other, but there's no way to have a sexual liaison. Well uh, and, and then yeah. Zeus remedy is that is that right? No, no, that's exactly right. But I was just going to, that that their source of why that they were one being and they're being cleaved for one another, right. and so they most more than anything else just want to be back together. They right. Want, so they they were once whole and they tried to overthrow the gods, and the way to prevent that from happening, Zeus divides and conquers. Yeah. So love on this account is an attempt to heal an original wound. This yes. is the way Aristophanes yeah. talks about it. It's a wound that must be healed by joining back together. And so Zeus arranges things that, so people can actually copulate. And so the original different couplings of male and female are male-male that explains homosexuality and lesbianism and heterosexuality because we're all just trying to find our other original half. But I think one of the important things to take away from Aristophanes' speech is, towards the end is... So sex is not really about sex. Uh, he says something like, so no one would turn down the chance to be made whole again. Sex isn't about sex. It's about this merger. It's about this being completed by the other half. And the other thing I think we should keep in mind is that he thinks of love as this sort of replacement. Whatever sort of aspirations we had to be godlike, you know, our hubristic aspirations, our ambitious nature, love is a sort of compensation. Love is what we get because we don't get to be gods. Instead, we get to find our other halves and have happiness that way. So it's a kind of compensation. So he yeah. says true love is the reward for reverence of the gods, where reverence means, part of reverence means not attacking them. So. Yeah. That description of having the genitals pointed the other way 
<laughs> not being able to yeah. fulfill your sexual desire is an excellent description of my adolescence. <laughs> <laughs> I can't improve on this. <laughs> That kid's got his dick on backwards. I believe as as an important bit of foreshadowing that the reproductive aspect of sex is something that is just granted by the gods. It's not part of the what you actually want. You don't. You want to merge. You don't want to. It's really. I mean, it's strange in a way. And in a way, it's true to the psychology, which is lust and wanting to join another person. But it's strange that he leaves out children. So this is one obvious way that. Socrates will be able to remedy this, this account by saying, actually, there's a reproductive element to people getting together. That's so. the main one. Well, see, I thought they both acknowledged it, but it was Aristophanes said that it's, it's sort of externally imposed. The gods, the people were dying out, so they moved the genitals around, made them mate, and added this reproductive thing to mating. So the gods did that. It's not in our psychology. It's, it's just one of the byproducts. Whereas a major theme in Socrates' view is that, you know, whether it be actual reproduction or just creation, you know, making somebody else virtuous like you're virtuous, artistic creation, that replication is going to be actually a, a conscious part of the erotic urge for Socrates. And the way we become like gods. Right, immortality. immortality so we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Okay. The next speech, Aristophanes gives his speech, and then it comes around to Agathon. And it's worth noting that in between each of these speeches, there's little asides with respect to the um, rest of the audience and the participants. So we had the belching and the belch fighting and the, the nose tickling. And they raised the scorecards. Yep. So, so Socrates, after Aristophanes' speech, you know, begins to complain about how good the speeches are, how can he possibly follow them up, and he's really nervous about Agathon's speech. And so Agathon goes and gives a speech. And remember, Agathon's the host of the party. Um, and he, well, he likes himself. He, uh, he's a good-looking guy. He's a good-looking guy, and he's just won the competition. He's the talk of the town. So, and akin to the other speeches, he gives a speech that reflects a lot on himself. And basically, he gives a speech that does a couple things. One is it's done in a high rhetorical style. And in reading it in English, you get this, that it is a much more well-crafted speech. But it also comes across even more if you can work through parts of the Greek that just the rhetorical style um, and he alludes to it specifically Socrates does actually that it's the rhetorical style of Gorgias and it's a name drop but it's worth pointing out did we, we did, the, did we do Gorgias? yeah yeah so Gorgias is a famous rhetorician and sophist a guy who taught people how to make great speeches in order to get out of uh, traffic uh, tickets <laughs> yeah, or getting killed, you know, or you know, go in courts, basically. But also how to become dominant political yes, players and yes, how to get ahead and influence people. Yes, and so basically how do you talk and influence people and learn how to manipulate speech to get what you want? And the criticism that Socrates levels against that is great speech is only great insofar that it's directed towards the good. And the accusation he makes against Gorgias is that you pray, you make speeches in praise of anything regardless of whether it's good. So Agathon embraces this style and gives this very first-rate speech about love that's also in praise of himself. And he goes on and says that love is in fact the youngest of the gods, love is the most beautiful, most virtuous, and love's benefits are manifest 
in youth and beauty and virtue that is in me. <laughs> and, and so at the very end of the speech, and I'm just going to read this section because... Uh, it's all about the poetry. Because at the very end, Socrates actually reacts to the way he ends it, saying, you know, it was a beautiful speech, but that I, I can't even possibly continue because did you hear the end of the speech? It's just... So um, he says... Love fills us with togetherness and drains all of our divisiveness away. Love calls gatherings like these together. In feasts, in dances, and in ceremonies, he gives the lead. Love moves us to mildness, removes us from wildness. He is the giver of kindness, never of meanness. Gracious, kindly, let wise men see and gods admire. Treasure to lovers, envy to others. Fathers of elegance, luxury, delicacy, grace, yearning, desire. Love cares well for good men, cares not for bad ones. In pain, in fear, in desire or speech, love is our best guide and guard. He is our comrade and our savior, ornament of all gods and men, most beautiful leader and the best. Every man should follow love, sing beautifully his hymns, and join with him in the song he sings that charms the mind of God or man. Guitar solo. <laughs> He's not unlike Kim Jong Un. I, I read the same translation as you, but just re- hearing it read aloud, yeah, uh-huh. that is amazingly. <laughs> It's it's true oratory. And, and what you want to imagine is he's he's like standing up and he's got a drink and he's talking. At the end, he just goes like this. <laughs> <laughs> Look at me. It's beautiful. <laughs> so now, and, and Socrates now not Socrates cowers away. He doesn't want to do this. And I, even now, like what what if you ask people in the popular culture what is love? Like it's that kind of crap. It's beautiful. That, it's what you get on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what's, what's interesting, so in his case, so he's giving this possession model of love where love is something you possess. It sort of inhabits your character. Mm-hmm. He even talks about that at some point, about how ineffable it is and the way it's sort of, you know, it's kind of fluid and supple so that it can enter your soul yeah. unnoticed. Um, it's feet. It's so it's soft. Uh, like a liquid. Puppy. So we're back to virtue. You know, I, I mean, I think we kept with it the whole way. But we're back to talking about how love instills virtue, except the way we started this with Phaedrus is it's virtue in the, the lover who doesn't want to embarrass themselves in front of the beloved. But now it's sort of we are with the beloved, which is what Agathon is used to being. Mm-hmm. We're with the person who... And we're talking about love instilling... And he talks about specific virtues, courage and wisdom and so on and so forth, and the way that love leads to these things by sort of possessing you or you possessing it. So So this one in particular, this sort of like really flowery language about love is something that we still see. But almost everyone's speech thus far contains elements that we still see Mm -hmm. in sort of the modern like, what is love? Like, well, so you get the, with Pausinius, you get this like, well, I mean, there's terrible love, which is just, like, being torn with someone and, like, I love her dad. You don't understand. Like, that is one. And then there's, like, the hardworking, virtuous love. So even this, like, well, true love is hard work and communication or whatever and don't be 16. All of this shows up in culture. And while Socrates' speech is, like, notable for being Socratic, it has the weird normal things that Socrates has going on where, like, uh, yeah, okay, the forms, yep. And the uh, yeah, love wisdom, got it, Socrates. It's just interesting to me that like we continue to see all of this. 
all of these elements, all of these descriptions of love or how it, what it means to feel about someone still get talked about and not obviously no one is talking about them in the context of the symposium. These are just, these are almost like standard tropes about love that I'm not sure we'll ever get rid of. You complete me. Right. Well, that's Aristophanes. Right. <laughs> but the other, the other element that's, that would appeal to contemporaries is the, the way I summarize the speech in my notes is love makes us nice, which you, you got to in the poetry. That's the whole summary. It's one of the, it's the way I like to remember. Because uh, that's what, you know, his version of virtue is peaceableness and niceness. And he even contrasts that to this element, what he talks about as necessity. Things people do, you know, when they're trying to survive, basically. This love, love is something you do when you have everything you need and it's a kind of surplus and it's peaceable and so yeah mm. civilized so finally we get to socrates so we didn't assign socrates, no. socrates well, we is a together. responsibility <laughs> yeah god everybody in unison so <laughs> well so the first thing that socrates does is he up at, at this point this is halfway through a little over halfway through socrates has questioned no one which if you've read any other platonic dialogue you which I recognize as being completely crazy. Socrates has not engaged in any kind of... Pedantic annoyingness? Yes. No, thank God. Oh, it's no. pretty annoying. I mean, he starts out like a very standard Socratic act, kind of like, oh, I didn't realize we were just here to say whatever we wanted. <laughs> yes. That's, I thought we were here to say true things. Yes. Now that I know that we're here to say things well, he does, rather than... Yeah, he begins with a very harsh, actually, we shouldn't rush over that. No, we shouldn't. Because harsh. Yeah. Yes, it's about... He's like, you're an idiot. That's yeah. right. basically... It's like, so well, sarcastic. Forgive so. me. I'm so sorry. You'll have to release me from my promise because yeah. I wasn't. I was only prepared to say truth, the true things. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for you guys. I clearly, did not know this was a bullshit. You clearly prepared for me. I don't know how to bullshit the way you guys. Holy bullshit. shit! I am not. A, I cannot bullshit. To this. So you'll have to accept my humble truth. <laughs> yeah. Sorry for caring about the truth. <laughs> that's on me. Sorry for wanting to say something. That's good. my burden, I suppose. That's, that's actually a good bookend to go back to the very, the very first episode where I think we. We described Socrates as an asshole in episode one. <laughs> yeah. Which explains our following. <laughs> we're, we're now come full circle. So once he gets over this thing about saying that uh, he wants to talk about the truth, Socrates asks permission to ask Agathon questions because he wants to sort of sort them some things out. So he first starts questioning Agathon about his speech. And the main thing that he does is he takes on this claim that Agathon has of love is the youngest, the most beautiful, the most virtuous, that love is an extreme, right? And that love is beautiful. And the first thing... This idealized yes, version of love. Yes, but. yes. And, 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 and he basically says, well, is love of something or is love not of something? And, so, and Agathon says, well, love is love of something. <laughs> And Why, of course, Socrates. <laughs> it could not be otherwise. Yes. So he's challenging. It's love of a, there's a thing that is loved, yeah. Yes, so, uh, there is something that is loved. Yeah. And the other thing was, in loving it, does that mean we want it, we need it, we desire it? He says, yes, yes, of course. And if we want it and need it and desire it, do we have it? He says, no, no, we don't have it. Yeah. So, so he, he wants to challenge this possession yes. model of love. That yes. So, about so if love wants the beautiful love cannot be beautiful that's his whole shit which happens all the time if you want something yes. you are in need of it yes. and you lack it yes. and you're 
you know, we get into the sort of negative or the negation element of love, which is that if we desire something, if we have this sort of, you know, vector yep. tendency towards something, there has to be yep. something lacking in us to yep. make us want it. If I want something that takes up physical space, there's no way I could already myself take up physical space, because otherwise I would not want the thing that takes up physical space. <laughs> We're gonna we'll cut that out. In the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying it's no, an obvious fallacy. Well, no, no but it's an obvious fallacy on no, one level the, the, that love can't be if the personification yes. of love can't be beautiful. But it's not an obvious fallacy to say psychologically that if we want something, we have to be lacking in some yeah. way. And, um, and and he also makes the point that it's it's not here, right? It's in it's in the speech with Diotima that makes clear the distinction that you can be strong and want to be strong, and you can. Uh, be beautiful and also want to be beautiful. He wants to avoid that mistake that you can have the thing that you also want, but your disposition of wanting it has to do with you wanting it for all time. Yeah, right. Yeah, That's, exactly. And that is right away. Yes. Right? yes. Like, so yes. you're reading Before it and you're do. thinking like, I don't know, dude, I want to be smart and I'm pretty smart. And, he's like, <laughs> and by the way, I, yeah. this is this first level of objection. You, what you really want is to continue to be smart. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, if you're like Agathon and you have it all, there's the anxiety of keeping it all. So wanting good things, not just wanting good things, but wanting good things forever. Wanting to continue to have good things. And so that's the point of this interlude where he questions Agathon. It's just to establish that love actually isn't beautiful or virtuous or good-looking. Right. That love is... It's lacking. It's a a lacking. But then we get to the the autumn speech and we get this... It's not either all have everything or have nothing. Yeah, yeah. It's yes. somewhere in between. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little bridge here just to yep. fill in a little gap. We talked about the first three speeches focusing on the outcomes or the aspects or the effects of love. And it's actually brought up that, well, you're not saying anything about the character or the nature of love. You're talking about the effects. And so it's the, the latter speeches right before Socrates where they're trying to actually characterize the types of things. That's like, love is young or love is the oldest of gods or the youngest of gods or... And so what Socrates is doing is responding to that characterization to say, well, you said love was the youngest and most beautiful and this and that and the other thing, but if love was the most beautiful, he wouldn't want beauty. Mm-hmm. So he's got a lack, to some extent, lack beauty. And, and he's doing this, what I think is exceptionally odd. This may be the weirdest <laughs> rhetorical move in this entire thing where he says, love's kind of in between beautiful and, and ugly and in between you know, virtuous and not virtuous. Like you have to be in this kind of middle ground in order to be able to aspire yeah. in the sense of desiring mm-hmm. that which you don't have. Because if you're all the way on the other end, then you somehow can't have that aspirational. You, the ugly can't desire to be beautiful. Because you don't like, even know what yeah. beauty is. You don't. You don't even know. Yeah. Well, you don't know. Or, the, or the the vulgar can't aspire to be virtuous because you're already somehow in that. Yeah. Or the ignorant can't aspire to be wise. So being in between knowing and ignorance is one characteristic of Eros, of that in-betweenness. Because you are not wise, you don't know, but you are oriented towards knowing. You want knowledge, you want to become knowing. Whereas if you were ignorant, you would have a kind of complacency. You would be satisfied. You would not be directed towards. Knowing. This is sort of evocative of Amino, yeah. right? It's, it's exactly. not that we, it's ex- we don't all over again. Yeah, it's. It's not that you know. Amino all over. We can be. It's not that we, you know, are completely. When we're seeking knowledge of something, it's not that we are completely lacking in that respect. That's Otherwise, right. we have sort of clues. You know, we know how to inquire. We know 
we have some opinions about you know the thing we want to learn about and so on and so forth. So we have have to have some sort of purchase on it. I mean, the whole the whole idea is it's not these two very split extremes. So it's sort of a reprise of Eximachus where we get these two elements. For him, it was the the high and low versions of love, right, which have to be harmonized and mixed together. And here we have to have it's evocative of that harmony in the sense we get this in betweenness. We get something which partakes of both poverty and wealth, for instance. It's, and life is sort of that in sort of in between state. We have periods of being sated by something, but hunger always comes back. And that's the dynamism I'm, you know, I talked about earlier. These static views don't work. It's, they're sort of death like, and, and mm-hmm. nothing in reality really resembles them. Really, we have this in between state of sometimes being sated, other times feeling lacking and, and trying to sate ourselves. So just to put it in explicitly Socratic language that the balance is, you know nothing, well, that's bad, but you know you know nothing, so that's good. So it's pretty much Socrates... Well, you have to know you know nothing in order to be, yes. to be forward-directed in order yes. to be a seeker. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Now, for those of you who weren't sitting in Dylan's living room last night, <laughs> after the third cup of wine... I got into some, some self-confessional type of things. That you'll have to wait to see. But part of that was... Citizens Commons. Yeah, part of that was me saying how, you know, I don't, uh, ontology bores me and I'm very interested in ethics and political philosophy and all that. But, Which you've never said before. Yeah, I've never, never. I'm not tipping my hand here. But this particular point is, I think, I think it's radical in that it sounds to me because... What comes out of this is, it says, well, look, the gods are good. The gods are purely good. They're in the virtue category. And then I guess you'd put titans or somebody else's in the non-virtuous category. And he creates this, this is, we're getting into Diotima's speech, but the idea that love occupies this third place in the hierarchy of gods. There's the gods, there's something else, and then there's these daemons or demons, right? That, that fits this. And in that sense, I think he's kind of creating an ontology which allows for the third term. It's not just an epistemic indeterminacy. It's not just, I don't know this or I don't know that. It's that there are literally good, bad, and not good or bad. And when you think about how the dual or this, you know, this notion that we've created these opposites and that the whole history of philosophy in a lot of ways is predicated on these ideas of opposites, good versus evil, right, and, and that sort of thing, it's amazing that this is here. I think. And I think it's here in a significant way, and yet at the same time, in many of the other Platonic dialogues, it collapses, and a lot of what was built on the history of philosophy is on this idea of a dualism or a, a strictly dual or, or you know, two-term nature. And there's something here right here that we could have grabbed a hold of. Anyway. Well, You've got to mix them. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, it's, and it's not just a mixture of staticness, right? Importantly, Eros is actually a go-between. It's this spiritedness mm-hmm. is not just a third category of a kind of indeterminate static mixture, but actually right. is dynamic. It's a yeah. becoming. It's a yeah. process, which is different than either of those two cases. Yeah. And it's absolutely important. It's, and for Socrates, his own spiritedness, his own diamond, is something that moves and animates him. In the Apology, this is what he appeals to that uh, philosophy bro related to at the beginning that his daemon is what pushes him and is what directs him towards wanting to know more things, wanting to know things, and knowing that he does not know, just like as related in the symposium. 
I agree that I think he's doing something like metaphysical, not just like this isn't just an argument about knowledge. He's saying like, nope, third kind of thing. And that's why it stood out to me as almost like the place where I wanted the most argument. I want the biggest gap in how much argument I wanted to see versus how much there was. Because you're just like, you know how you could not know but want to know. And then there are people who don't know and don't know they don't. It was like a like a Rumsfeld. So you just blew through like, you got <laughs> people who don't know but don't want to know. And then you got people who know. And then you got people who don't know and are like, I wish I knew. So anyway, you don't have to be, you can be in the middle with everything. Moving on. And it was like, everything, nope, he's the forms. Got it, Socrates. Well, well right. but what, what do you think about the, um, so Socrates relates that he learned everything about love from Diodema. Mm-hmm. In fact, early on, we, we skipped over this part. Socrates claims that the only thing he knows about is love, that he he is right. the doctor of love. Which is a way of restating, the only thing I know is that I don't, I don't know. That's love right. is love. That's exactly right. So. That's exactly right. So, I mean, in, in Greek, if you said I was a physicist or if I was a doctor, the way it's written in, in Greek is ta erotica, right? The, I am the knower of love. Like, I would be the knower of physics. And Cyrus initially claims that this is the only thing that I know. And just before he relates this, he says, I, I don't know why I was crazy man to say that, because I can't possibly live up to that. But the person he learned it from was Diodema. At least that's what he says. Who he's just made up on the spot. He's just made up. <laughs> Interestingly, she is a woman. Mm-hmm. and A priestess. A priestess. And she teaches him about love and... He then relates a speech of hers. So he starts off talking about his relationship Whoop. with Diodema. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> wait, wait <let's laughs> no, 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 you didn't skip. There's another important point. She doesn't just teach him about love. She teaches him about love in the Socratic style. Yes. He learned yes. his right. own annoying... It's <laughs> <laughs> so, like the only thing he can do. This is, this is in, in many ways, a very subvert... If I... Lusa Rigore or... or <laughs> this is... The most subversive feminist text in the history of philosophy, <laughs> in a certain way, if you want to read it that the way. The interrogation but, comes from the feminine. Absolutely. No, no, I'm just saying that everything that we have ascribed to Socrates, he in turn ascribes to Diotiman. Well, yes, that's exactly right. He's midwife. I mean, he, you know, this isn't the only place where he emphasizes his that fem- femininity, that yes. the femininity yeah. is what's functioning in him when he's, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. After sort of giving sort of his introductory background and talking about Diotima, he then says, well, this is what Diotima told me, and basically gives a speech in her voice, right? And you have to... I mean, in her voice, in his voice. Like, yeah, her, right. voice, her voice, in his voice, and right. of course, this is Apollodorus saying right. Aristodemus, da 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 Relays a dialogue. <laughs> right. Relays a dialogue. And then I said yeah. this. And then she said that. Right. <laughs> yes. But... What I was thinking about that speech was the origin myth at the beginning, where Eros is born from. That it seemed to be a case where there's a little bit more content and not just walking by. I mean, it's mm-hmm. told in the form of a myth. Poverty and resource. Poverty and right. resource, yes. So Eros is born out of poverty, which is Pena, and uh, resource, which is Poros, and is the child of them. And born on the day that Aphrodite was born. So we get reproduction... It's going to end with reproduction, but we get that from the very yes. beginning as well. And so, this in-betweenness is yes. the result of yes. reproductive act. Yeah. And, and, so, and so for, for Eros' entire existence, Eros is both poor but never, ha- never rich, always has resource but never has enough, and um, is always in between. And striving. And striving, yeah. In so between. in between life and death, poverty yes. and wealth, wisdom yes. and ignorance. Yes. And in fact, dies and then is reborn. Right, right. 
Now, is this supposed to apply just to people, or is this a metaphysical point? Like, I, I thought the Eric Simicus's cosmic love makes the world go round was just something that was thrown out there as a piece of bullshit and then dropped. But you're no, this is, this is he was setting the ground for this whole metaphysical. I picture. think he does set the ground for this. So, Socrates is obviously improving on it because I think you know, as we've mentioned before. Eric Simicus is just talking about mixture, and we want to get something more That's dynamic right. where this is a third category, the in-between, in its own right, and has its own you know, ontological... Plato is usually characterized metaphysically as a Parmenidean, as that is the opposite of Heraclitus. It's not that everything is flux and teleology and motion. It's that there's what's really real is the forms that are static and that's why this was such an influence on Christian thinking, because you know what's really real is God, and then the rest of this is just so much effluvia. Well, and it sounds like he's an empirical Heraclitean and a transcendental Platonist. <laughs> he accepts. He accepts. Yeah, it's a con. Hey, it's a quick, con joke. Quick, so he accepts Heraclitus. Quick check: How many are Team Parmenides and how many are Team Parmenides? <laughs> Team Heraclitus? Team Heraclitus, right? All right, good. It's so easy to be on Team, I don't know what the fuck you people are talking about. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) No, but in a way, he accepts the Heraclitean skeptical kind of critique, and that's why he's trying to set up something that is a little sort of set aside area that's immune to that and that's where you know where we can actually have knowledge of things the world is flux and unknowable simply empirically and so we need you know this separate world of um, ideas that are knowable the world is flux right but the, the question is why is the flux there what's the motivation to do any one thing or another and there's a sense in which you can read this as being a synthesis where he's bringing in some kind of Parmenidean structure in order to try to create a motivation. Otherwise, because the flux has to have some kind of dynamism to it. He's, well, a, in a, direction. he's a total Heraclitean in this dialogue. I'm going to make yeah. that argument. And you get the foreshadowing of this in Eurximachus' speech. So that even though Eurximachus is talking about harmony and mixing, I mean, harmony is on the right track. And he talks about the Heraclitean bow, the idea of this sort of um, tension. I don't know. Dynamic somebody, tension. Yeah, dynamic this tension. dynamic in between and, tension. And the, and, stas- so, and the stasis is born out of that tension and Heraclitus, right? Yeah. And Heraclitus, everything is sort of, you know, this goes back to our Ava yep. Brown Heraclitus. She comes first in the billing. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, the, the tension is sort of a fundamental grounding of things. Yep. And I think that's what we get here. It's, it's not these static categories that are grounding for the world. It's this dynamic tension. So, right, so just, just to that's explain, what it means to say love just, is the, just to give the basis the, of all things. The 30 second version for people that did not listen to our Heraclitus episode and have no idea what we're talking about. The idea is just ultimately what is reality? Is it a static thing and everything, all the apparent change is just illusion somehow, right? Or is the apparent changes, that's really all there is. There's nothing behind it. And so a pure, this is, Heraclitus actually had a more subtle view, which you can. Go listen to that episode and learn more about. But he at least is characterized whenever he comes up in a platonic dialogue as just this pure, everything is flux, and Plato just thinks that doesn't make any sense. That ultimately, unless there was something stable underneath the flux, then it would just collapse on itself. But, but I think what's really important here is that that characteristic of, <laughs> of, uh, of Plato as being only focused on forms you realize that that is not the whole story when you read this. It's really important that over and over and over again, Socrates says, 
The only thing I know is that I know nothing and that it's an orientation towards knowing more, a desire in this uh, dialogue, an erotic desire to know more. And that the characterization of the sum of Plato and Socrates is an orientation towards static forms is it's missing something that is plainly there when you read the dialogues. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the kind of static notion aligns with this the possession theory of love, which yeah. he's rejecting, which yeah, he starts out sort of it's really more Agathonian. critical of Agathon, yeah. but it really also applies to Aristophanes yes. because yes, for Aristophanes it's about possession of the other half. And you know, there's that little remark in the beginning of the dialogue, if only knowledge or, or teaching were like pouring, you know, water into another vessel. That's another sort of static conception of what it means to learn mm -hmm. along these lines. So so what we get into with his rejection of it's sort of his rejection of Ag, of Aristophanes conception of loving that leads us to it's actually not the other half we love but it's the good and that's a kind of pivot in diatomous speech where we now you know yeah. we get to the next part of the account are we rejecting the idea that love is the mediator between like the static and the flux i think we're accepting that okay good. right yeah yeah great whatever the hell that means <laughs> it means being a lover that love is not Directed is not the beautiful. It's the activity of being being a lover. That's what the in betweenness is. Yeah, yeah. It's that. It's not possession of beauty. No. It's a vector. It's a directedness towards the beauty that we lack, but it's still a directedness. I understand that, but I still don't think that it that that counts as a reasonable sounding metaphysical position to say. You know, like I was just describing that there's lines. That's like process philosophy. Right? I, and it's my like, loving means I am directed toward. Isn't this just something like process? philosophy yeah, exactly. and saying it's you know yeah it's activity it's becoming any yeah. whitehead any well, whitehead super scholars on this position <laughs> like that was that <laughs> was no, easy i think he I, I mean i think he gives a very by the way this is kind of the denouement so if you're still awake um, no, I think we still haven't quite gotten the end of oh, the Adamus. We haven't actually gotten to, to the Socrates actual reproduction. Yeah. We need to get to reproduction before yeah, so we, we have to do that. that. Okay, well, but there's there's the fact that this is somehow kind of a inductive process. Can can we go there now, or is that? Yeah, sure. Okay, so he tries to tie it back in to some of the speeches we heard earlier, where he says, "Okay, let's start with you're the lover and you love a beautiful person, right? It's that that love of that physical beauty." And he says, so you'll love a beautiful person and you'll realize there's lots of beautiful people. And you'll realize that there's nothing really particularly special about that particular beautiful person, that what you love is physical beauty. And so then you start loving all beautiful people, right? That's when you know you've made progress. That's when you know, when you're a Wilt Chamberlain. When you're prescribing, when you're, Chamber, when you're promiscuous, you've gone up a lot. It's not literally loving all beautiful people. No, no, but when, it, when you realize that what you love is physical beauty and not that particular beautiful person, I'm not into her because of the way she looks. I'm uh, into her because of the way anyone could look. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, you're right. I, I didn't mean to, right. I didn't mean to imply that you were that shallow. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> And then, and then you kind of, if you're the right kind of soul, whatever the, whatever the right criteria is, you can say, okay, well, I realize I love beauty, but it's transient. Beauty comes and goes in individuals. And, it's, and you, you transcend the love of physical beauty to the love of a beautiful soul. And I don't know if you go through that whole individual and collective phase again, but you go from loving individual physical beauty to some sort of like more transcendent beauty. And then you're able to then go beyond that and talk about uh, love of 
beautiful things. I mean, beyond just souls, but also uh, you know other sorts of things. And well, laws and customs, basically laws, things that you know about. So, yes. so yeah. And, and ultimately, the point is, you're climbing the ladder of, of beauty, love. the ladder of, of love, abstraction of beauty, which is also right. going from the particular to the abstract, and you will end up where? Crowd response. You'll end up at beauty itself, right? The form of the form of beauty, which is not used. They don't use the word form, right? But, and the good. And the good. And that this is, in some way, uh, in many ways, one of the most coherent kind of presentations of the idea of the Platonic form in all the dialogues. And it ties it to this notion of induction, where somehow you can continue to work your way through an abstract layer until you get to some sense of abstraction where you're not actually moving to a next level, but you're, it, you read the dialogue because I can't, I can't recreate what, what he says about that particular last stage, but there's some kind of a movement at the very end where um, if you're the special kind of person, which is to say you are a... Lover. A lover who is also a... Philosopher. Philosopher, right. Yes, then you will be able to apprehend, encounter, know, the form of beauty, the form of the good, so not tied to yeah. any particular. One, one interesting thing is here is there, it's sort of a rebuttal of the Pausanias notion of the high and low love, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of them just being these radically disparate things, there's mm -hmm. actually one as a ladder to the other. Yeah, and it actually doesn't stop at souls or character. The way Pausanias thinks of it, the higher form of love is you love someone for who they are, right? And that's sort of amenable to contemporary ears. You know, you don't just love someone for the way they look, you love them for who they are. But for Socrates, no, it goes beyond that. You learn that that is also not a secure foundation for love. You yeah. love beauty itself. But I think until you, we complete the account, that kind of sounds vague. It's not just we love beauty itself and its sort of instantiation in some particular or another. It's what beauty does, which is the reproductive element. Yes. And, and mm -hmm. that's how we can understand what he calls the purpose of beauty. So the purpose of beauty is to reproduce, which actually means a few different things. Yeah. yeah. So at this point, we have sort of his account of what love is. That's love is wanting to possess the beautiful, wanting to possess the good forever. So it's, direct, it's a directed activity directed towards the beautiful and the good. That's what love is. And then we get the purpose of love. This is like, I also want to say like, while this is a response to a lot of those other ideas, we've convicted a lot of those other ideas of being self-serving. And this is like pretty self-serving. I think what we got to say like Socrates is like, well, love is wanting beauty. And then you, it goes higher and higher. And everyone's like, is he going? Yeah, he's going to the forms. It's like, and then you love beauty everywhere. And then you love, and it's like, here it comes. Then you love beauty itself. And that leads you to love wisdom. And I don't know what kind of person would love wisdom. I mean, what would you even call that? I don't know, but maybe I'm one of those. I don't know. Yeah. But there's an element yes. of plausible kind of self-help <laughs> right. as well, because it's the reproductive element is actually important to relationships. It's yeah. not just, oh, here's a great soul, and now I love them forever. I mean, it reminds me of some study I saw recently where they came out with something that said, people who sublimate together stay together longer and there's some element people of, who sublimate together yeah someone people who have common interests it doesn't rhyme it, it doesn't <laughs> uh, what? stay people together just leave it and stay together, together. <laughs> yeah what does that mean people who have common interests they have something else that they both love 
They can't just love each other. There has to be a third thing that they both love to do together. And that's part of the point here, whether it's children, the procreation of children, or whether it's a, you know, friends seeking knowledge together, or any other type of what you want to call reproductivity. There has to be a dynamic element to the relationship, activity, you know, some common activity. Other they're just transforming from solid to gas immediately. Wait, did I? That they were sublimating? Oh, I see, I see. The physicist meets the psychologist. Is that a science joke? Yeah, that's a very, that's that's a very science funny joke? science joke. Let's not yeah, get each other's yeah. jokes on there. <laughs> So this is probably the single most. Coils. This is probably the single most influential insight in the symposium that that when you love somebody, as much as anthropologists or psychologists might tell you that you are, it's just animals and you'll be attracted to anybody of a certain physical type that is near you. The actual experiences of love is transcendent. That you don't, you even if you have them right there, you just want more. You want to eat them you want something and you can't even name it and that's you know you see god through them it's it's really become something so you want to be immortal again he's elaborating on the aristophian account right aristophanes Mm -hmm. said it's not just sex we want it's merger Mm -hmm. uh no it's not merger we want merger is actually scary and merger (laughs) is death you don't just want to merge with the other person you want that individuality and you want the in-betweenness that he talks about you want that dynamic continuing to live. And that's where reproduction comes in. Reproduction in the presence of beauty is what it's all about for I, Socrates. I think the what reproduction does in this context, if you think of it in terms of, um, I want this and if I possess it, I will be happy. So you, you want to possess the other you want to possess the other person. And this is really a very strong condemnation of that, yeah. that point yeah. of view to say, possession is not enough. And even going beyond Possession for all time, which was the notion we brought up earlier that, you know, desire is either desire of a lack of something or it's a desire to have something that you have forever. What he's saying is, no, true love goes beyond possession to the extent that you want to perpetuate. You want to go beyond your own existence, beyond your own and perpetuate this thing forever. And it could be through children. It could be if you through art, it could be through. Virtue. The beloved is your mute. But also, it's but it ends easy. with it's through virtue, which again, it's you know, again, love. I was going to say, praise of love is about podcast. Right. But it's about virtue. So he talks. the The highest thing is the for love is to give birth to virtue in a person. Or that is that cities. is really the ultimate. Yeah. And cities, though. Okay. Like, isn't it a, the greatest, beautiful, most beautiful part of wisdom deals with the creation of cities and yeah. households? Well, but that's that's, that's at stage two of the latter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an extension, isn't yeah. it? Of the, yeah, fair enough. Create virtue in the individual versus in the community, or the. So you're with your beloved, and it excites you. you even just the the thing that you might like to do together is even just have just be together, have a conversation. That you are this person that is your love is the one that really gets your mind going that really gets you you know if you're artistic then you'll use them as your muse if you're not then there are many other things that you might do in reaction to that yeah i mean relationship problems revolve to some extent around these problems of possession and merger right people who are too boundaryless or they there's too much boundaries they're too distant from each other or they can't love someone for a long time because they love the chase and possession is boring. And that's where being in the in-between position of being a seeker and being co-seekers, let's say, instead of co-sublimators, uh, is an important part of, an important part of love, which I think 
you know, is a great philosophical and psychological uh, insight in this dialogue. It's really impressive how, like, sort of scientifically disposed the dialogue is, especially Socrates' part. Like, he's clearly trying to explain as much as he possibly can about what he knows about love. It's not, I mean, obviously some of the poetic accounts were very strange, but he's like, he's very much taking into account, like, yeah, and love makes us want to have kids, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense at a first pass, so let's talk about exactly why that's going on. Or love doesn't seem to consist in these, like, deviant ways of having relationships, like possessing. So what could explain all of this? But love is also the thing that makes us want to attain anything. It wants us to create cities, wants us to mm-hmm. that kind of immortality. And it's interestingly, importantly, directly rooted in our physical experience, but it transcends outside of our physical experience. Yeah, and I think, yeah. you know, again, this, even though we've sort of emphasized sublimation and, and doing art, say, let's say artistic things, Again, I think that's sort of that's still not the whole way up the ladder. It is really about this concept of virtue, which is why the last speech that Alcibiades gives makes sense because this yeah. that speech is a about Socrates as a paragon of virtue. So it, before we, it completes the speech. Yeah. Before we jump to that, I wanted to, so one of the points that connects the giving birth and the ladder of beauty is this. Technically, however, it's impossible for the soul to conceive. In the presence of anything ugly. Ugliness, after all, is totally out of tune with the numinous. In this divine right, there can be no threat of discord. Beauty, on the other hand, is very much in harmony with the divine. To be critical for a second, you know, yes, I like the idea that you are my beloved and you excite me to create art and things, but aren't people also excited by the ugly? Isn't tragedy also something that gets you going? I mean... I put this in the category. But tragedies of, are beautiful. I put this in the category of <laughs> the sublime artifact, in the same way as pederasty. If you want to go back to, um, well, you know, this idea that there's this. <laughs> I identity. don't want to go back. <laughs> no, no, no. That, it doesn't sound like, like where we well, want to go. you really <laughs> keep bringing it back to pederasty. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's this identification of the good and the beautiful. You know, in, in, uh, look, go listen to our episode on genealogy of morals if you want to get that that story in a, in a particular flavor, but. I don't think there's anything, I mean, that's, I think we just put that in the category of, yeah, it's a quirk, but the idea that love is, love is the inspirational force. Love is the creative force. If you create anything, if you move forward in your existence as a human being and you make something of yourself, you try to better yourself, become a more virtuous person, or you have children because you want to create a family, or you inspire others through teaching to become thinkers or, or creators of themselves. That's what love is. That's what Socrates is, is saying here. That's the purpose. That's what love does, which I think brings it back to that cosmological Hesiod point of love is the motive force. It's the dynamic counterbalance to the static world of things and beings. It's the thing that creates and, and, and generates activity, which in turn results in beauty, the creation of beauty, whatever form that might take. But is he, he's not saying, I don't think, that like love is some force that motivates those things. It seems like he's saying, he's more closely identifying love with the motivation itself, right? Like love is the motivation to do better. Love is the activity. Right, or yeah. the disposition or something like that. He's not saying love is like the plus to, to the minus of static. 
It's no. not the opposite. No, static. no, 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 no. Disposition to it's in between the it, two it's static the, it's poles. It's the relation. It's, yeah. it's the thing that it's the thing that the right. relation between two static things. Right. I'm just so he's not saying, and some of the other guys in the dialogue tried to say like, "Love is this? Well, it's a god," and he's even saying something like, "It's not even really a thing we can properly talk about." It's like motive. It's the motivation itself. It seems mm-hmm. like he's saying. Take us home with Alcibiades. Right? You're gonna. Or we skip Alcibiades. Yeah. Well, we should. We should. We have. To, we have to mention. So at this. Well, point, it's not. It's not just a, like a little irrelevant. It's not an irrelevant yeah. thing because yeah, so, again, it, it goes towards the virtue. Yeah. Point so so at this point, Socrates finishes his speech, and a carousing gang of drunkards break into the symposium. This staid and quiet drinking party where they were just. Talking about boys. Talk. <laughs> well, they were also. Which boys did you like? They were also nursing hangovers. <laughs> yes. So, so, so they, they were all. So Alcibiades bursts in with his entourage, and Alcibiades. Most of these characters in Platonic dialogues, they often were famous people in Greek culture, and Alcibiades is one of the most famous, and he is famous in politics for having led argued for the Athenian invasion of Sicily, which ended up being a complete disaster for the Athenians and brought the whole civilization basically to an end. And Alcibiades is one of the great leaders, great political leaders. This is also a theme in the Platonic Dialogues. Is a lot of the people that Socrates interacts with are the young men who are going to be or are leaders in Athenian society, which is why he's brought to trial, right? Because some of the people who are their fathers want, think that he's a troublemaker because he's pushing them to do things that are different than what they think they ought to be doing. So the corruption of the youth, in, in particular, yes. this was he argued that we should attack Sicily, and then for some re- various reasons he was going to be arrested, so he left town, and so they attacked Sicily without him, and it was, well, in fact, it was a disaster, and so they blamed him. Well, in fact, Socrates. the reason that he was arrested was because he was accused of desecrating the Hermes, which are these statues that sit outside of everybody's houses. And one account is that this symposium, this story, takes place on the night in which Alcibiades was supposed to have desecrated the Hermes. Wow. And that this is an account for why he was not the one that did it. This is alibi? Yes. Alibi. So, anyway, that's getting a little bit. But so, Alcibiades bursts in. He's completely drunk. He's got an entourage with him. He doesn't even notice that Socrates is there. And he greets Agathon, and he gets himself, he's going to give Agathon a wreath, and he sits down next to Agathon. And then he turns, and Agathon says, Oh, well, there's room for three of us on the couch. He's like, Well, who else is here? He turns and looks at Socrates, and he leaps up. And he says, you're always wherever I am. You are constantly cursing, my lo- following me around. And he leaps into this kind of drunken speech about how Socrates is his worst tormentor as a lover. Well, they, they, but also they the greatest thing they say, his life but, but the they greatest thing is life bread. Yeah. Huh? They ask him to make a speech. They yes. say, look, look yes. you just broke on. We were giving all these speeches. Now you tell us about love. And he says, well, I'm not going to... Tell you about love in general. I don't know what the hell that is about, but I, I can tell you about my experience with Socrates and what kind of guy he is. So, so he insists on giving a speech, not in praise of love. Everybody else is giving a speech about love. He's going to give a speech in praise of Socrates. 
whom he loves. <laughs> whom he loves. So, so uh, it's it's a it's a drunken uh, speech, though pretty you know well articulated for a drunken speech. So it's like drunk dialing, except in front of a lot of people. And... <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So we get some things about. Socrates frustrating him because Socrates won't give him yeah, Socrates, his physical desire. Yeah, so so Alcibiades yeah. wants him. Socrates won't. In fact, he tells a story that he says he's never told anybody else, which is he had the, this time alone with Socrates and he embraced him and they in fact slept together, but nothing happened. He says he said, "I swear to God, nothing happened, and it was horrible." Right. That's that. That's what Alcibiades said. Again, again, like adolescence. Right? <laughs> yeah, it has a very like teenage adolescent sort of feel to it, where he's like, yeah. "Well, I was like, we should hang out sometime," and I asked him, and then we did hang out. Nothing happened. So I was like, "Hey, let's wrestle," and then we wrestled, and like he kept beating me, and I was like, "Finally," and then that didn't happen. So then I was like, "You should come over and I'll make you dinner," and I like cook for him and everything, and that like, and then we just sat on the couch and he left. So then I was like, "That didn't work." So I had him come over for dinner again, and then we were just sitting on our couch talking, and I was like, "Socrates, uh, boy, you're really great." And then Socrates says, "Like, well, you must." See something in me that I don't see in you. Like I appreciate. It. He says, "Like I appreciate the compliment. You must see a goodness in me that I don't share." So what's up with that? He's like, "Oh, I totally do, and everything's great." And and he like throws his coat around Socrates, so they're like just just bodies now, and then they just pass out. Well, and in fact, he says, uh, Alcibiades explicitly says, "I will give myself to you." So, right. Yes, and and and. I feel like you have so much to teach me, and I have just learned so much. From yes, you. just 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 just. I'll do whatever. Just it, take me. It would be bad of me not to do whatever you want, give since you have so much to teach me. I mean, you should see what I do for people who don't have anything to teach. Me. <laughs> <laughs> if I want to do that for them, I should do that for you too. And Socrates is like, that's probably fine. Don't even worry about it. Well, no. In fact, in fact, Socrates says you would have me trade gold for bronze. Right. So, which is which is an allusion to the Iliad, but he says, "What I have to give you is gold to that bronze." That's so he actually explicitly right. insults him, and then Alcibiades goes, "Okay, great." Like thinks that's okay, great. So now let's share share clothes. Like just misses that. So next yes. time you're about to say, "It's not you, it's me," say that. It's right. <laughs> I have gold, and you have bronze. That's on me. And then he finishes with like, so watch out for him is all I'm saying. Like, he's going to use you. And Saku's like, that's not what our relationship is. What are you doing? Well, but the the tragedy, though, the tragedy, uh, according to Alcibiades, is that he gets that Socrates is a great teacher and he's a seeker. Mm -hmm. He he realizes that the kind of life that Socrates is pushing is the kind that he actually aspires to. Well, he complains about being bitten in the heart by, right? Philosophy yeah. So, but but he did, But then, then as soon as Socrates leaves, then he just starts to try to plead the masses again. Basically, yeah, he's a guy who has a political, active, you know, go out and do things kind of guy. And Socrates says that's all a waste of time. You should be doing philosophy. And he's tempted by that, but he can never, you know, fully get into that. So this is so he explicitly complains about that. But then, obviously, all of this is a metaphor for what it's like to be a philosopher. What it's like to love something. That uh, doesn't able, reward and not be you. Not able to get it to have sex with. with <laughs> yes, exactly. The, what beauty, the form of the beauty. No, will to not do have something. This, the, to do something which you know isn't uh, obviously useful. Doesn't produce technology. Doesn't produce these sort of 
other gratifications. Well, so it doesn't fulfill the, desire. Philosophy is the study of that which doesn't fulfill desire. The being a lover. You are always in the position of a seeker. You never get these fully satisfying answers to your questions. You are warned. Philosophy <laughs> will never go to bed with you, no matter how hard you try. Philosophy will never go to bed with you. All right. So you're unsatisfied by it's not today. This isn't. That's just the way it works. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so. But there's there's also I think besides it's not clear to me that he's necessarily trying to get Alcibiades to be a philosopher in the way that Socrates is a philosopher. In fact, I don't know that that Socrates really would you know believes or partakes of sort of the professionalization notion of philosophy. But certainly he'd want him to be a philosopher in the sense of being directed towards virtue and being directed towards the good, and in particular for a leader like Alcibiades to lead and rule the city with an eye towards the good and not towards what is just of holding just holding power right so it's a the part of it is trying to persuade the rulers to rule well by having the proper disposition of their proper yeah. direction of their own so he's own not rule. He's not a good poster boy for that. No, Alcibiades is yeah. not. So but, despite being, yeah, despite yeah. being enamored of philosophy and Socrates, it's not something. Yeah. yeah so it, so it doesn't always work, right? This could also you could also say this is this is Plato saying, well, he tried. Socrates yeah. tried, but but we we should also say he doesn't. You know, he does also go into this thing about all of Socrates' different virtues. Yes, yes. Which, we have to mention so Socrates it's not, you know, virtues. sort of immunity to hunger and alcohol. Yeah. You can drink a lot and cold and his courageousness in battle. Yeah, he, so so yes. we do get the idea that, you know, again, this comes back to the end of the Ottoman speech, that the giving birth to virtue in the presence of beauty, that that's something that Socrates has successfully done. That virtue, so if we want to talk about practical application, there is the sense of virtue or excellence that Socrates is supposed to embody but, but his praise of Socrates isn't it a little bit like Agathon's in that Socrates right. is the greatest right. of all things right. we don't know how seriously to take it yeah yeah. yeah. he tells the story that Socrates can that when they were in battle they were in this battle and it was the worst winter ever and whenever they would go outside their tents they'd bind their feet and try to stay as warm as possible Socrates would walk out in a tunic and bare feet as if it didn't matter to him anything at all and that he could, he could drink as much as he possibly, anybody would give him, he never gets drunk. He never tires. And in fact, at the end of the dialogue, he's the only one that stays up all night, walks away, spends the day in the Lyceum, and then goes home. So can and we hear some all, of that, these all those same facts of, uh, in yeah. that uh, Alcibiades voice? <laughs> <laughs> it would sound much more dreamy. He's <laughs> like Jesus. Uh, you know what? I think we've reached the point where we, like the end of the dialogue, must have a great sea of revelers pouring through the front door and uh, join us. And so we, we have a mic that we're going to activate so that somebody can come up of you and you know, ask a question, make a comment, especially I think that it would be appropriate to hear from a few people what you think of this symposium, what we've been talking about this whole time. So come on up. I have one specific question that I thought. Awesome. So, sorry. Okay. Highly. Okay, in the beginning you talked about uh, shame for part of love. Did they view shame as immoral love? Like, would that be characterized as the same thing? Like, it would be immoral for them to be pederast, even though that's what you talked about a lot. 
It's, it's not shame of being a pederast. It's shame because the person who loves you is watching you and you don't want to do something embarrassing. So it's actually supposed to be a good shame. Okay, right? so do they have immoral love? Do they think of love as immoral or moral? Well, there's a, that discussion in Pausanias, right, is between the ignoble and the noble kinds so, of love. Right, if it's just lust, if it's just what Alcibiades was doing, apparently, then that, that is the... So Phaedrus, before we get the noble, before we get the noble, ignoble love, we get the shame in Phaedrus. So yeah, shame mm-hmm. is about, shame and pride are about encouraging, you know, it's what you feel before the person you love that makes you do good things. Yeah. So. And it doesn't get talked about so much in here, right? But even though Eros is the activity that is directed towards the good and always towards the good, Socrates will say, and Plato in his voice will say, that we never truly desire anything that is not good. So, And it might be a, to the extent that we do bad things, it's a, a misalignment of our desire. And, and the other thing, you think about shame, I think you want to think about the concept of conscience mm-hmm. um, or pride, which is the other thing Phaedrus talks about. You know, you want to think about the more positive side of conscience, which is ambition and people wanting to do great, the, uh, great things or having certain ideals. Yep. And those two things are really are erotic phenomena, even though they may not seem it. So yep. conscience is something that arises in the context of love relations, you know, we think of them as you know between parents and children, mm-hmm. but that's the way conscience does arise. Yep. So. Tim, come on yep. up. Yeah, I was thinking about this question of uh, how appropriate it is to take any of this metaphysically. This question of whether we should just read it sort of at the human level <clears throat> or the psychological level, and the barrier that seems to come up again and again is this assumption that Plato's ultimate metaphysics is both static and complete. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's room in Plato's thoughts, which is, I guess, a question a little more generally beyond just this text, for a metaphysics of incompleteness, where this lack is still somehow available and present in the world. It's not just a human psychological thing. Or do we think that Plato really would say, no, the one, the good, is total, complete. Whether it's fixed or not, I don't know. But that really... uh, Lack has no place in metaphysics. Yeah, I guess it depends what, if you're talking about metaphysics, it's sort of what's the ultimate ontological layer, then yeah, it's the static. But if you expand that to what we actually experience, then like Wes was saying, then he's Heracleitean in his account of the empirical world, maybe. So the question, yeah, (laughs) we were making him out to be, or I was, a sort of process philosopher. Is that legitimate? I don't. But I I like the idea uh, of an, an existential depressing uh, ontology of incompleteness. But I, I don't know what figure. I would say Plato probably didn't think there was room for lack in his metaphysics, yeah. but I think Derrida did. Would you, I heard you talking a lot about dynamism. So would you say, he, he would say the, the relationships between the forms as they participate in the one, right? At that level, is there room for saying he might have allowed for a dynamism in a system of forms? The highest forms. I don't know. Well, I think even before you get to a relationship between different forms, which I think is a really complex and difficult topic, think about the relationship between the form and the individual or the instantiations or the actual concrete things in the world that participate in the form. And how would you characterize that relationship? That in itself is very problematic and I think has some of this inherent tension in it 
that you have to kind of address before you even get to that level. Well, I like that a lot. So would you say, like, you know, we all give the triangle speech, right, that the triangle doesn't change, and this is one of the ways in which he you know, demonstrates the eternal, but is the triangle complete in and of itself, or does it also lack, you know, it's defined, it's not everything, so as a form, is it, does it need to participate? In my opinion, there has to be something that participates in the form for that form to have any, if I was a form and there were nothing concrete out in the world that was instantiating or existing me, then I would feel somehow incomplete. In no, absolutely. Opinion. But at the other level, that there are triangles, but there are also circles, right? And they participate in something in the one. Yeah. Right? Does, does, so so questions like these, the questions like the these answers we don't know are what, <laughs> and they're what Aristotle used to sync Platonic metaphysics, exactly. right? So, like, yeah, that's a good question, and one that Aristotle was like, and you don't have answers for those. So right. you're onto something, and that something was like, Aristotle was like, yep, that's. Great question. Isn't that the question? Yeah. <laughs> well, but, 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 Thanks, Tim, for, uh, for bringing Aristotle into the conversation. <laughs> Name dropper. <laughs> but, but that's also, you know, I guess you'd, ha you'd have to go to the text and have some other kinds of arguments about it. But a dialogue like the symposium makes me really want to focus on the activity of being a philosopher that Socrates embodied and less on what the status of the forms are. It makes me feel like there is a metaphysical account of the forms, but that is far less important for Socrates in the end than the activity of what he's doing and how that's playing out. It's almost like it could be a myth. It could be like the myth of Ur or Aristophanes' myth or something like that. It could have that kind of status because what really is important in the end is the activity that he's going through. Right, stuff we don't see until we're dead, till we're out of the cave, and so the most well, we can say is some kind of vague stuff. Well, and, and, but these, they're, they're concepts that also serve functions like a limit in calculus yes. and an infinitesimal yeah. in calculus, yeah. uh, depending on which way you go. And you can always ask these questions about, well, the infinitesimal yeah. is paradoxical or is there really the limit? But their sort of problematic nature doesn't eliminate the fact that they serve their functions. They serve That's their right. functions mathematically, and they serve their functions yes. right, let, so. Let's keep the folks coming up, and we'll try not to have a 15-minute conversation in response to each question. <laughs> I really liked what you guys are saying about the static and that dynamic. In the third term you guys are trying to talk about, and I, I don't mean to drop a name, but I find it really helpful. Dylan said that Dylan's not a name. Yeah, that's okay. That's not a name. You can draft Dylan's name. No, no, no. That's awesome. No, that's okay. Uh, the Dylan-Nonian um, concept, I guess, <laughs> of, of uh, you said the, the lover mm -hmm. is the third term. Mm -hmm. and that, I was really thinking this was Kierkegaard's, the relation that relates itself to itself. Mm -hmm. He's saying the self is that dynamic third term. Mm -hmm. So maybe the best way to understand it, like you're saying, is not to think about it in this big metaphysics way but just the ontology of the self going forward towards goals, towards something that they need to achieve. Is that a helpful thing at all? Or? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. I don't I, have anything. Daniel, Kierkegaard expert, did you have any? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I, I had the same thought. I made the same connection. Did you? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's a good thought, Seth. Yeah. You don't just have a name here, though, because it's not just his concept. He's saying... What Dylan's saying, it's not a big metaphysical point. The third term is the lover. It's the philosopher. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the philosopher is not just this, you know, like you guys are saying, oh, he's this, got this profession. The philosopher is the person who's okay with being dynamic and going forward and accepting that kind of task, I guess. It seems like Kierkegaard was doing something like 
almost one level deeper where he was saying like the self just is this process and Plato seems to be saying or Socrates seems to be saying something more like love is a process that a person does yeah. and so that might be like the difference between the two but I think they seem related like those yeah. are that's it, a good way to put it it's explicitly brought up in the symposium the idea of being a poet and the word in Greek a poesis means to be a maker and that has a analogical meaning across all kinds of things but to be a poet would mean to, mean to write verse and meter and stuff like that so that activity of being a person who is a maker or a lover would be a similar kind of thing. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Jeremy. And now Daniel is going to step to the mic. And if you have anything to say about Kierkegaard, feel free as long as it is brief. And then you're going to read a question. Yeah, I think I'll do the audience a favor and spare them my thoughts on Kierkegaard. But I, <laughs> I thought that was a good point. So I, I'll at least give that thumbs up to the question. But I would like to take an opportunity to share some questions that are coming in live yeah. from around the world. And I've got a question here from uh, Angela McLaughlin in Australia about Diatima in the symposium. She had a two-part related question. One, do you folks feel that Diatima was a real historical character at this time, or was she a literary construct? Wouldn't necessarily expect you guys to have an answer to that, since it seems to be an open question. But just curious if you had any thoughts on this. Perhaps more to the point, though, if she is a literary construct, it is sort of a bizarrely hyper-masculine discussion about the nature of love. You do have this introduction of basically one female character, other than the flute girl, I suppose. Do you guys have any thoughts on what she was meant to represent in the question of love? And, you know, Angela throws out a thought here. She says, perhaps Diatima has been brought in as a means of expressing the giving of birth, an activity linked to female. Well, yes. Yes. Yeah. But is there anything beyond that to so, say? Yeah. Yeah. You know, because it, it seems like that's so not... It is the connection. return of the flute girl, right? The flute girl is excluded. Reproductivity is initially excluded. Right. Then, of course, to bring back reproductivity, if that's the point of love, you have to bring back femininity. Yeah. Right. Well, it, it's another manifestation of Socrates' claim of being a midwife also. So this language of reproduction, of giving birth of gaining immortality through that and of searching for knowledge as being pregnant, all of that language is throughout the dialogue. Sure. In the, and the manifestation in this case with Diotima, I don't know that it particularly matters if she's actually real or not, right. if, it's, if it's a myth that Socrates is telling. I think, in fact, it doesn't um, become more or less interesting if she's actually real. Right. I don't think. I think the fact that she's a priestess, and I will yeah. give... Uh, Linda Walsh, our recent guest, credit for this insight, but that female and priestess, it's the gods, it's other. It's sure. a language that, it, it, you know, you guys talking in this symposium aren't going to solve this. We need something more God-connected to hook us up with the correct answer. Well, and I think it's also very much a slap in the face of all of the speeches and all of the thought before that, that the masculine was the only option for virtue and all this uh, this sort of thing. Well, I'm glad you put it that way. I'm going to inject myself into this. And without asking for a normative comment from you guys on this, it does seem to me to sort of invert that. Yes, he's saying, well, hey, women have a role to play here too, except for the fact that it seems to me that the only role that women seem to have a play in this concept is just their utility for reproduction. Unless that's a misinterpretation. No, no, no. no, no, no. She's that's the one who let two pederasts go first. No, but, no, no, no. But the, the, the model of the older male lover and the younger male lover, what Socrates is doing here is saying, well, you know who my lover was? Right. Mm -hmm. Woman, priestess, you know, and just 
that but, completely undercuts the whole notion that the all the stuff that came before where the only way that that virtue can be transmitted is between male and male. But, but and she's clearly not historical though because she responds directly to things in the previous. Oh yeah, that's true. Love sure. is not you know about finding your your other half. You know she says that. That's sure, right. sure. No, no, As if she even overheard what Aristotle. <laughs> the point is the point uh, is just. And this was not a speech that Aristotle. But it doesn't. But that doesn't matter point. because clearly, I mean, the, clearly the point is. It's a very obvious, you know, way of rejecting the focus on masculinity and men. So, although yeah. still bringing in the only female as the exotic fictional other is still super sexist. You can yeah, always, I'm, so, no, I'm trying to. So you, I'm trying to make, you can make that argument no matter what what happens. All right, right. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get away from the idea of like how super sexist it is. That I think that kind of goes without saying. I don't think we have to go into you know, the, the mores of ancient Greece. <laughs> Uh, to me, the issue is, it strikes me as odd, unless it's just, this is sort of a quirk of Plato himself, why is it that that's sort of the only mention of it? You know, Seth, you point out, well, Socrates injects this in order to be able to undercut the prior arguments, except for the fact that why is that even necessary? Why is this the one person to whom this seems to be obvious? Right. So what, the, is that say, what is Plato saying about this group, or, or what can we derive from Greek attitudes at the time? It's not so much from a judgmental sense, of just trying to get in their heads of what why is that being brought in as such a unique insight? Fuck, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know the answer your to that beard. question. I, I don't honestly know the answer to that question. But I can say, yeah, Plato could have written another dialogue that was between Diotima and, and Socrates, right? He could have taken a very different tack. He could have featured female characters in other and dialogues. Yet. And, and, and yet. And yet. Right. And nonetheless, that's not the way Greek society was at the time. Nonetheless, I think there's something meaningful in the choice. If you believe... How many people, again, have read this before the... Did anybody notice the kind of dissonance when we went from kind of the speech-giving, verse-like approach to suddenly the injection of the Socratic questioning approach when Socrates... And you're like, you realize how tedious and painful it is to read that, right? And you were thankful. Yeah. You were thankful when it went... And then even we got averted. And I think that's indicative of the fact that Plato is a master stylist. And when you read this, every choice he makes uh, is a conscious choice. And so I think we have to give some level of credence to the fact that he made a decision to bring this in then. Even in the commentary that I read about it, you know, saying how the expectation was if you were following the model of the way these things were supposed to go, he should have just stopped yeah. right before the Diotima uh, piece. But he doesn't. And the fact that he makes all these conscious decisions, he injects this thing in here. This isn't like Aristotle's students taking notes and cobbling together. This is there's some integrity to the text. That there's a reason for it, and you got to take it seriously. And that's kind of you know the the sort of generous way of approaching it. So now, what we make of it, fortunately, since I'm not married to authorial intent, I can interpret this any way I want. In which case, that's what I I think he's a feminist. Plato was the first radical feminist in philosophy. How's that, Daniel? Very good. All right. All right, anybody else want to get up here? Maybe one last person. Oh, we, okay, right. we have two last people. Right. We had simultaneous hands. Yeah, so I just uh, This is Nick. Yeah, Nick. Yeah. So I just want to thank you guys for the project that you do and the time that you take because, like, I'm not a philosophy guy, and it's just really great every week to get exposed to new ideas and thinkers and everything. So just thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, thanks. thank you. I appreciate it. I'm clapping for the rest Introduce of yourself. I can't read your name tag. Hello, uh, my name's uh, Dennis Phillips, and uh, I was trained in mathematics 
And then I can see some parallels to philosophy. Well, I went into mathematics because I thought it was the end all, know all. And then when I got up to my final defense, I realized they were going to send me out on the street without having uh, job talents. <laughs> <laughs> but fortunately, I had familiar with that. for college and I knew how to grid satellite images and I was able to make up for that. And I, I regard this as a uh, dynamic between the um, ideal and, and, and the real life and that you uh, you can have your ideals, but you have to make your uh, compromises. And uh, and when you fall in love, you will find that the person that you're with is not your perfect corresponding partner, nor are you. And you have to work that out, and that's part of the uh, dynamics. So thank you for giving this. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely true. Did we have any more online yeah. questions? Yeah, ask, I think ask, we should. Yeah. Ask another. Why don't we start with a more open-ended question, because maybe people are using this as a, an opportunity to just ask you guys questions generally. I've got a question here from uh, Pepe Silvia, who's asking, which philosophical position, whether it be realism, anti-realism, et cetera, do you hold in respect to the entities posited by the natural sciences? Missionary. I don't know. <laughs> Very good. Next question. Is there a philosophical theory that you find utterly distasteful? Yours. Uh, <laughs> We've got, I've got one from Michael Burgess. Objectivism. Okay. Uh, philosophical theories. We've already oh, sorry. <laughs> Let's hear from Michael Burgess. That's yeah, Michael Burgess uh, emails in. He says here, sort of a multi-part question he throws in. There's uh, a shocker. Right. <laughs> Is he talking Love about Love as an ontological principle can be bound up in gendered metaphysics and cosmologies. Quote, in the beginning, a man had sex with a woman, and out of their unity arose the world, etc. End quote. What's the best or most accurate or generous interpretation of this kind of metaphysics? Phenomenological or political moral, or is it some sort of genuine realist commitment? Psychological. Excellent. I, 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 like, it, I like political moral, if you have to choose one of those things. That sure. If they're going to be talking about Pausanias is the bad version of love and the good version of love. And the way, the way Seth presented it was that these were both daughters of something. But I thought I remember very clearly, you know, just the fact that the low one yep. is androgynous and the high one is male only. Like that. No, no, no. no. It had to do with the parents, not with the Aphrodite oh, himself. Okay. But I think when I say psychological, I mean that. I think with Freud and psychoanalysis and contemporary psychology that's been influenced by that, you'll see lots of things that will remind you of the symposium and this sort of, mm -hmm. so you don't have to take it meta metaphysically, right. physically, the, the idea sure. of female and right. male principles or whatever you want to say about it being present in all human beings and having a dynamic relationship. Excellent. Michael continues. Sorry, <laughs> uh, Michael will wrap up shortly. Uh, comment, almost de definitional of pagan theology are principles which transcend the gods that they have to conform to. The gods are mm. just, etc. I wonder if Seth considers this radical because of Abrahamic theology in which there are no principles which are separate from the will of God. Not so sure that's the case, but let's throw it out there. Question, what is the better theology for us today? Should we try to rehabilitate pagan theology? Oh, God. All right, so I'm 15 not 15 minutes or less. Listen, I'm not going to touch the rehabilitating pagan theology, but I will say that if you want to talk about Abrahamic religion, it's not the case that God decides what's good at least not strictly speaking. There's a saying in Judaism that you love the Torah more than God. And what that means is that you love the revealed word more than you love 
the idea or the, the personification of God. And to the extent that God writes down these commandments, he is committed to that covenant in the same way that you are. And to that extent, it's absolutely not true that after that, God can change the rules or decide what's good. Once he enters into the contract, it's binding. So I don't think that's a fair characterization of, of that particular type of relationship. Sounds good. All right. Right. There Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Josh. Thank you all for coming out. Thanks for coming. Great. One, two, three, four. My memory with a passing glow Changing what I think I don't know for you Fine fade passing time Steal my senses with a glossy grind Drawn in full and resting my mind on you I feel I hold I feel I hold I feel I hope I feel I you won't look back on me and feel you have to look away. You, when I was mine, come off empty with an ass in line. Maybe the years will take off the shine from you. Love, loss, after touch, free the premise, won't amount too much. Pretty darn free, but left in the clutch. Oh, you, ooh, ooh. I feel I hope, I feel I hope, I feel I hope, I feel I. You won't look back on me and crack on me and fade out into black on me and wither into fact on me and feel you have to look away. memory with a glancing blow changing what I don't care to know for you I feel I hope 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 I Feel I hope. So that's not actually hoping, it's feeling like maybe you hope. This is called Find You Out, because we are all fakers in some degree, to some extent. And they're going to find out.
They're gonna find you out 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 You built it, they bought it So flawed and contradictory But they don't know the half of it You hope they never will You willed it want it, a part of you embraces what stands out upon your face is just the tip of your nose though you want to clear yourself out so you fit to be seen, you think it's much too late for that and you can never be clean, they're gonna find you out 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 you did it done it, you went and followed through and now it's seeping right through you and it cannot be denied you use it, you ooze it, your inner core will choose it, and you're never gonna lose it, cause it's gotten inside, though you want to clear yourself out so you're fit to be seen you think it's much too late for that and you can never be clean, you're gonna find they're gonna find you out 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 You're hiding in the open You hold in place to not be seen You choose your words so carefully One slip and you'll die You're in it You own it, this trip You come along Unclench your lips to hum a song And quiet each beauty cry Though you'd like to open up to someone Share it around You've got to keep on missing You can never be found They're gonna They're gonna find you out 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 And when they do All their faces They're gonna beat you Till you're up to nothing. It's about uh, how other people just won't do what you want. 
what you want and I want what I want you want your wants but I want your wants and it all adds up to nothing all adds up to nothing you need what you What you need You want What you need But I need A kind of need That you wouldn't believe in If I spelled it out in blood That you couldn't believe in If it caused a flood But it all adds up to nothing All adds up to nothing Well, it all adds up to nothing All adds up to nothing What makes people cling together What makes people sing together Is a whole night of loneliness And I think that you're born to this It takes different eyes to see that Something makes us rise to be that whole for yourself Be enough for yourself And it all adds up to nothing All adds up to nothing Well it all adds up to nothing All adds up to nothing your violin. Please play Cajon for the next song instead. It's like a drama, see? It's like the symposium. <laughs> I don't know how to fix myself so I can work like you want me to work. I try to keep you at the top of my mind, but my mind is no top. I bottom out again. What can I do for your love that I can help? I would die for your love, but that wouldn't help. I can't believe it would be any easy for you. 
If I took all my problems and just stayed away from you So we're in for the long haul And all I want is an easy ride I'm sorry I don't always say the right thing to do What you want me to do What can I do for you calling right now It's only the moments I'm off my guard that seem to count Life would be any easy for you If I took all my problems and put them all on you But I don't take you for granted I don't know what that means If it's just something you've invented Well, it's the last thing that we I don't know if I can fix myself so I work like you want me to work I can make little gestures but my face will give away That it's me I'll be here for you darling this moment, this minute right now It's only the moments I'm off my guard that seem to count I know a lifetime of moments is harder than a man of less than steady hands could give But I'll give you this one and the next and maybe you can adjust your expectations because I Take you for granted I don't know what that means If it's just something you've invented It's got us bursting at the seams So please, please give me some credit Even if it's more than I deserved I'm dished in for the long course And it's all that I can serve So give me seven more chances Give me sixty more years To prove I'm into your dances And to show you I can feel you Right, the next song is brand new. I actually wrote it to try to get Lucy Lawless to sing it, but she didn't. She hasn't had time yet, so I'm gonna do it instead. I think she's act. No, she's not here. <laughs> in place of a soul, I've got tendency. Gotta lean in. I've got energy. Well, I push headlong into a tumbling world of my own, of my own. Well, I don't know what I am driving. I am pressing the keys. I am using what's left of my periphery. I am forward, essentially. I am motion and force, something too fast to see. And my eyes focus out to a point and refract. And I will reach every door, nothing fails to react. And I will overcome all the crap that I drag. I am not asking the world, I am not asking the world. I demand it, I insist. If I must give a reason, well, consider this fist. I demand it, I require her. Mistake what I make and all the love I inspire. A place of a soul, I got irony in the space of a conscience, a rock. 
in this piece My belief is a 15-ton truck If I hold out my hand You will shiver, you'll shiver I am driving, I am pressing it down If I fly at the speed I will be sleeping around I am forward, I am on the way I'm a mistake of the future Well, all be someday And my eyes focus out to a point And refract And I will pierce every door Nothing fails to react And I will overcome all the crap that I drag I am not asking the world I am not asking the world I demand it I insist If I must give a reason Well, consider this fist I demand it I require you mistake what I make and all the love I inspire Don't be put out a fool to cover yourself and drool I'm a person, a person, and not a force of nature I don't be one of those guys who puts feet in his mouth I am lonely and done, I won't save you, won't save you I demand it, I insist If I must give a reason, well consider this fist I demand it, I require You mistake what I make and all the love I inspire And my eyes focus out to a point And refract and retract and turn black and go back And attack and relax and distract and attract And react 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 and react